This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 549 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Josie V., now, Josie has an incredibly powerful story, both on the career track and on her personal health track. She is originally from Holland, Netherlands, and worked as a police officer there before emigrating to the US and once again joining the world of policing. Earlier this year, she was also diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor. So we discussed not only the impact of that diagnosis, but the powerful mental and physical health journey she took to the point, as I record this, where she is once again cancer-free and well on her way to becoming the physical specimen she was prior to her diagnosis. Before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 550 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Josie V. Enjoy. Well, 
Josie, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I'm really excited. I feel kind of like a celebrity, I think, because, you know, I've been a fan of Behind the Shield for a long time and a big supporter. And just to be here uh, in more ways than just one is an honor. Yeah, well, I'm honored, and you know your your story. You know, this last year or so, I think is is more admirable than the selfless work that you do wearing a uniform. So, just to preface this, we had to delay the conversation because of your voice. So, let's start right off the bat with you know how how your treatment affected your voice, and then we'll start going chronologically after that. Okay. Yeah. Um, after my second brain surgery. Um, my vocal cords were damaged probably by intubation. We're not quite sure. Um, it paralyzed my left vocal cord, but, um, I sounded kind of like Minnie Mouse coming out of my second surgery and I was, it was fine. It started healing itself, but then I started chemo and my voice just took a turn for the worst and I sounded like a robot. And this was the vocal cord paralysis. The theory is that because of chemo, my body kind of put healing my vocal cords on the back burner because obviously everything else was being attacked and there were more important things for my body to do. So I walked around with a robot voice for a while, but um, recently I had a procedure which basically meant they would put fillers in my vocal cord, the one that's paralyzed, my left vocal cord, uh, kind of like a Botox treatment for my vocal cords. It's temporary. I still have a little bit of an issue, especially because I had chemo last week. Um, again, my body just ditches trying to take care of this secondary problem and starts taking care of, you know, the poison that's in my body. So now I sound like this. And sometimes I kind of flip back and forth and being a little hazy in my voice. But um, so far... It's been uh, an interesting journey with the vocal cords, but I'm I'm just happy to that there's even an option for me to keep my voice the way it was. No, well, it sounds great. I just want to preface that because you know, obviously, it's different than your voice prior to this whole you know process that you've been through. Um, so with mm-hmm. the botoxing one side, have that basically frozen the one so that the other side is basically doing all the 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 voice production for both at the moment actually no i I guess botox might be the wrong way to um really identify it it it's a filler so basically it's a, a type of um biodegradable if you will material that they put in the vocal cord which fills it up because it's paralyzed and when it's filled up um it doesn't have to work as hard to close because the vocal cords are, you know, a nerve basically. So that nerve on the left side is damaged. And so the filler um, helps, you know, my brain is sending messages to my vocal cord, but it's just not receiving it. Hence the nerve thing, right? So the filler helps um, to increase the movement of the vocal cord. So it's a little bit of both. I mean, the right vocal cord is obviously working harder than the left, but the filler actually allows for um, the left vocal cord to not have to work as hard, but still produce sound. 
Brilliant. Thank you for that. I was trying to visualize it. All right. Well, then people listening clearly understand that, you know, that you were, uh, you found yourself succumbing to a form of cancer at some point, but I want to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your early life, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. Um, I was born in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, uh, to a Dutch father and an American mother. And I you know, grew up in Amsterdam. So I went to school there. I was going to move to the United States with my mom in about you know, 2008, I think. And my mom decided that she wanted my education to continue in Europe because um, we do you know, in the Netherlands specifically have an excellent education system. Personally, I, uh, that's how I feel about it. And my parents feel the same way. So she decided to uh, stay until I was at least done with high school. And I ended up going to college in the Netherlands too, which is nice because, you know, college is um, government funded in the Netherlands. So uh, I think I saved just to interject, so you don't have a student debt the size of a mortgage? I don't. Huh. I have. I do have a small <laughs> student debt, um, but that is a choice I made to take out an ad- additional loan, which is a government loan. Um, so they, um, it, it's almost like a grant. So if if you don't pay it off within ten years, so if you take ten years to pay it off or more the rest turns into a grant from the government. And they've made some changes recently that I'm not super familiar with, so I could be making some mistakes here. But for me, uh, the grant or the government gives you money as a student, uh, regardless. Uh, They give you free public transportation for four years. And um, if you don't live with your parents anymore, they give you... Uh, money to pay the rent. So I had that. I took out a little bit, a small loan because my school didn't really uh, give me the time to work outside of college. So I had to take out a loan to be able to pay for rent and uh, other necessities. So I have a teeny tiny student loan, not even a car the, the price of a car, if you will. <laughs> well, it's so good to hear. And I was going to ask you that anyway, but you just you kind of put that in there right off the bat. There are so many countries that do things better than us. And, you know, we do some things better than the world. You know, I mean, every country has, has highs and lows. Um, you know, I talk about a lot Portugal's drug policy, Norway's uh, prison system. I think the UK's NHS, when fully funded, is amazing. Um, so you talked about the education. Are there any other areas when we're talking about the Netherlands that you think they do extremely well that maybe other countries could learn from and model? Yeah, a couple of things. I think, uh, well, first of all, public transportation. I mean, I, I uh, got accepted into a quite a high-ranking uh, school. Uh, and before that, I was denied that school. So I got accepted into a different uh, university and went there for a year. And this is a university that is, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of miles away, but on the other side of the country. But I was able to go um, because our train system is just phenomenal. And I was able to stay in Amsterdam for a while 
until I found a place. And I was able to go to school there, get the credits and the experience that I needed to go to this better university. And, you know, that I will, I'll never forget that. Uh, the fact that the train can take you wherever you need to go uh, for a reasonable price and as a student for free. And I think as a senior for free also, I'm not quite sure about that, um, is just unreal. You know, it's affordable for anyone really. Um, and it just opens opportunities for people. You know, I, I, you hear all these stories in American universities and stuff, you know, from kids not being able to leave their family because they are, they are the caretaker for their parents, for instance, or their little brother or sister. Um, and that issue just isn't as prevalent in the Netherlands um, because of transportation being affordable and accessible for everyone and safe, I think, you know, that is just gold. It's gold. You can't beat that. And on top of that, um, you know, our medical system, we've talked about it before, and, or at least we always are comment on each other's comments when it comes to uh, the healthcare system. And in the Netherlands, you know, they did privatize it when I was living there. So it went from completely government run to somewhat privatized. But, um, you know, uh, the privatization of hospitals or medical care in the Netherlands went a little bit differently. I wish I knew more about it or could tell you more about it. But it still includes the fact that everybody is insured and everybody receives medical treatment, which obviously is very necessary. Now, the, the reason why I think the Netherlands, you know, succeeds where other countries or the United States fails is because the Netherlands has separated, you know, um, drug use and drug abuse um, from the hospitals. And, you know, we have separate institutions where, you know, criminal drug users go, where regular drug users go. Um, they're not inundating our hospitals. Um, they are going to rehabs. That's where they're sent. And, you know, it's different. Uh, I, I understand that the U.S. Constitution uh, says, you know, we, we can't put the criminally insane in a mental ward unless we prove it. Otherwise, we're taking away people's freedom um, or people that need, you know, mental support. We can't forcefully institutionalize them. In the Netherlands, that's different. When they prove that someone is a danger to themselves or others, um, they can actually hospitalize someone against their will uh, for rehab, for treatment, if they're not taking their medications. Um, these things, um, you know, separate the medical, you know, the, the, the medical side of the Netherlands, you know, medical treatment and treatment of addicts and mental health. And that allows, in my opinion, that allows for a healthier, uh, more collaborative 
you know, medical system in our country, our beds, our ER beds are not full with people that are overdosing or people that are mentally ill and not taking their medications. Uh, we have a time and a space for them. And we have a time and a space for patients that are experiencing traumatic injuries. And I think, you know, that's huge. Oh, and that's why I love asking this question, because, you know, we don't hear any of these from within the UK, from within the US. You know, it's, you know, this is your brain on drugs and all these fucking ridiculous campaigns that we're exposed to that, you know, make an addict or someone suffering from anxiety and depression seem like, you know, a shitbag should be locked in prison. And that's what we do. And that's why our prisons are swelling with them and our streets are more dangerous than ever. So another perspective, because this is something I've talked about a lot as well, you ended up working in law enforcement in America. So like myself, you have a kind of international first responder perspective. Um, what do you attribute to the differences in cultures between the Dutch culture and American culture that create so much violence on our streets here? Um, and, and, and I'm assuming a lot less violence in Amsterdam. If I'm if I'm incorrect, then please correct me. But I know certainly when I speak to you know Norway and Sweden and some of these other countries, their streets are infinitely safer than than ours here, and a lot of the streets in the UK as well. You know, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, two would be my major. I mean, personally, what I believe are the major contributors in the United States. Um, and they also kind of go hand in hand. Uh, so I would say uh, the method of mental health treatment in the United States and the prescribing of oxycodone in the United States. And I think those go, go hand in hand, right? Uh, but also I think that Oxycodone is one of those things, you know, that we don't realize unless you, until you become a first responder, you know, I, when I moved to the United States and started the process of becoming a police officer, I had no idea. I really didn't. You know, I thought I knew it all. I've, I've experienced a lot of my life, you know, and I understand drugs. I mean, I grew up in Amsterdam, come on. But, uh, but then I saw meth. And then I started hearing stories from, you know, people that started on oxycodone because they had back pain or something. And now they are addicted to methamphetamine and in turn fentanyl, right? And that just is, I mean, it's such a tragedy. I can't even begin to, I don't think anybody can begin to comprehend or give it words. The fact that Oxys were so easily prescribed. I mean, I've broken so many bones in the Netherlands back when I was a kid, you know, and so forth. They'll give you an, uh, an ibuprofen and, uh, you know, tell you you're going to be all right. You know, this whole pain medication issue um, is just surreal, you know, and it, it has to do with society wanting to fix things quickly specifically American society. Right now, 2021, I feel like it's kind of everyone, but, you know, uh, it's like, okay, I am feeling this pain and I want to be as comfortable as possible, you know? And I, I think that makes people complacent. And I think that's an issue, right? 
But that's besides the point. The point is that the consequences of prescribing painkillers to American citizens has been, I mean, horrific. Uh, in the Netherlands, you know, and I, I could be wrong again. I'm like, I'm, I've been living here for about eight years now, but in my time, uh, uh, there was no meth. It's cocaine, heroin, not that, that that is any better, but I believe, my theory is that there, meth isn't rampant because we don't prescribe oxycodone or, or, or painkillers on a regular basis to everyone around us. Right. And, um, I think, I think that's a huge contributor to the issue that's in the United States. And I think the issue is significantly worse than anybody is willing to admit. Um, and then the mental health part of this is, like I said, we have a very different set of rules in the Netherlands, you know, being a danger to yourself or others, not regularly taking your medication as someone who is um, experiencing severe mental illness um, can and most likely will result in you being hospitalized in a treatment center in the Netherlands. Um and I don't know what the standard is to be released from those treatment centers, but these are court orders. And uh, it, that's different. And I know probably a lot of people in the United States kind of cringe when I say something like that, because you know the Constitution does protect us from these kind of things or these kind of uh, choices by, made by the government. But, you know, sometimes... <laughs> you know, as much as I'm, you know, I'm a cop, so I, I, I love the Constitution, right? Fascinated by it as a European as well. But we are really shooting ourselves in the foot with, you know, making our, basically we're making our jails mental institutions. And that gives the courts less time to focus on real crimes that gives police less time to focus on real crimes, that gives the jail less opportunity to work on rehabilitating their criminals because they're providing so much medical care for the people that have been jailed because of mental illness. And yeah, I hope I don't, you know, I hope I'm not like going too much on a tangent and all over the place with this. It's just all connected. So it's hard to, you know, men mention mental illness and not mention using methamphetamine as a, a, a self-medication, you know. Um, so because these people are just forgotten, you know, they're not taken care of. And you know, people don't understand when you're in psychosis that, you know, I've, I've spoken to people in psychosis on calls and they'll look you dead in the eye and say, yes, I've been taking my medication. And then their caregiver, you know, behind us tells my partner that they've been off their meds for three weeks and they don't know they're, they're in a different world. And we are not doing them justice in the United States. And the system in the Netherlands, you know, may seem oppressive to some, 
an un-American, if you will, right? Taking away someone's freedom. But a lot of these people um, cannot make these decisions for themselves. And they've burned their bridges with their families or they don't have families or their families don't know what to do. And we are, we're letting them down in the United States. In um, one last thing, in the Netherlands, we have this um, career path that's called a experience expert. And it's kind of like a social worker, but the social worker has experience in whatever field they are working with. So whether it's child abuse, drug abuse, homelessness, um, you know, mental illness, they are educated as social workers, but they also have personal experience so they can make a connection with the patients. And so they work in homes, hospitals, uh, clinics, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I know we sometimes have roles like that here too, but I think I've, I've personally seen how well these, you know, experience experts work. And again, that's offering people help uh, in a way that is different than locking them up or bringing them to an ER. And I think that's very valuable. Yeah. Well, it's such an important perspective. All these perspectives are important. Um, you know, I just had a, a kind of illusion of mine shattered a little bit. I've got a, a, a new online friend who is a, an author and, um, He's a South African living in New Zealand, and apparently they're all locking down and putting mandates. And I've been talking about how progressive they were because they were. Now even that has you know kind of taken a turn. So it's important that we hear the good and the bad. But one thing I see, you know, and people like Johan Hari are definitely you know, instrumental in in kind of uh, educating me. Is as you said, mental health. Now as a firefighter paramedic, the number of sheets I've pulled over teenagers because of gang warfare and you know overdoses and all these things, you see in our profession the ripple effect of the prohibition of drugs. You know, and so you see an addict. An addict is a consumer. So right there now you've got people just you know like we have this last year and a half. There are a lot of people that made a shitload of money on the pandemic. There was always people ready to prey on on everyone that's in need. So now you've empowered the underworld selling illicit drugs because we took it away from the medical community. And then you have the ripple effect of theft and murder and all these things. So then you have increased crime. Then you have prostitution, people trying to fund their own addiction. You have homelessness because they lost everything. So the number of kind of, you know, fingers of this issue that I see, like physically see in my career is heartbreaking to me. Now, with the streets of Amsterdam, because I was making an assumption, or Holland in general, do you see the level of violence that you see here in the U U.S.? No, uh, definitely not. It's also kind of different. A lot of people don't know that the Netherlands is, um, I would say, tormented by organized crime. Uh, we are one of the largest, one of the largest ports of entry in Europe, uh, both by air and by sea. And, you know, I think growing up in Amsterdam, which is basically the capital of um, 
you know, organized crime here in the Netherlands and seeing it happen um, has been fascinating. You know, honestly, for my own like safety, I'm not going to talk about it a lot. Um, not that I would, you know, have enemies or anything like that, but I mean, it is, I, I've experienced in my lifetime in the Netherlands and when I moved over here, um, you know, my friends have, uh, uh, daylight executions and, um, you know, it's a different type of issue. Very different. Now, is that you know? still illicit drug fate based though? Is it ultimately smuggling? smuggling it's smuggling based absolutely i mean uh it has to do with drugs has to do with guns it has to do uh you know with a lot of different things that i don't have that much knowledge about you know i part of me like still secretly wants to work you know a gang unit in the netherlands sometime and learn more about it and who knows maybe i get to do that someday but yeah, it's the port of entry issue. It's women, you know, it's prostitution, it's uh, uh, immigration, a lot of things, uh, but it's organized. It's different than our border issues. These are, you know, containers of people coming into ports and, and so forth. And uh, it's very interesting, fascinating, in fact. Yeah, very, very unusual perspective. So thank you for that. And, you know, again, I wouldn't want you to expand too much and, and put yourself in danger. But it, yeah, I mean, the, just seeing, like I said, that ripple effect, and then conversely, as Portugal did, when you take the illicit drug element out of it, you free up all that manpower and all the court systems for the true criminals of the world. And I think that's a very, you know, other important side effect, aside from the fact that we also allow our veterans to take drugs that actually work for things like PTSD. It's another added benefit. But, you know, we, there are some horrible people. I mean, you know, the pedophiles and the sex trafficking and, you know, the violent crime, as you said, um, the smuggling, um, those are areas. Imagine if we had the war on drugs, man and woman power that we have now focused just on everyone except addicts and we cut their freaking head off the snake to me you know as, as a brit working in the u.s and getting to speak to these people all over the world that seems like it would have such a powerful effect not only on the nation's physical and mental health but also on crime itself absolutely absolutely i mean like i said when i uh, started work as a police officer i had no idea what math was and i was absolutely shocked i thought i'd seen it all you know i've seen heroin use i've seen cocaine use and ecstasy and all that stuff but meth was just completely i mean blew me away absolutely blew me away no class no video could have prepared me for the interactions that i had with addicts yeah that's it's you know Mind blown. I grew up on a farm in England, so I wasn't really exposed. I lived in London for a bit, but I just wasn't exposed to much of anything prior to that. I was lifeguarding, so the worst thing I had was someone who couldn't swim. <laughs> so, big, big, <laughs> big, uh, you know, change in the opposite direction. Well, getting back to your life path. So, you know, you, you grew up in the Netherlands. Um, you became 
or you became as in currently uh, a phenomenal tactical athlete. So when you were young, what were you playing? What was your fitness like? Well, you know, I always tell this story because as a little girl, I wanted to play baseball and we didn't have any girl teams in Amsterdam or at least not as far as my parents knew. Um, then I wanted to do judo, which I did for a while. I really wanted to do kickboxing, which is obviously very popular in the Netherlands, um, but also kind of beyond my parents' scope of knowledge to figure out, you know, where to give me kickboxing classes. So I did judo for a while. Um, and then um, my parents put me on ballet. And I started doing ballet when I was you know, teeny tiny little girl. I couldn't even tell you, probably four or five. And... I did ballet from the time I was four until 23. I was 23. So um, I was dancing, I mean, several days a week by the time I was 16. And, you know, the Netherlands is we don't have club sport. Well, we have club sports. We don't have school sports. Like we have PT in high school and such, but we don't do teams of, uh, you know, football or, or, you know, the way it is in the United States. So you have to go to a club to play sports. So I played, you know, hockey, field hockey, rather, uh, field hockey and, and soccer and stuff. But that was just what we did, not because I was in a, a, a high school team or anything like that. Plus, I was too busy dancing. Uh, when I was 16, I got picked up by a uh, professional um, hip hop group and I toured with them um, and did performances with them. And uh, I was with them for a while. It was great memories, great people. And, you know, the uh, art scene in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam in particular is amazing. You know, there's a lot of funding. There, well, you know, I say that, uh, use that word lightly, but. Uh, people are willing to invest in the arts and people are creative and it's a very inspiring place to be when you're a creative mind. So that was my background. Um, you know, and when, when it was time to pick a college, the one thing I knew how to do was perform. It was so ingrained in my system. I mean, I, I didn't pretty much, didn't have any other, you know, honed skill. <laughs> so I decided to go to an art school and I went to college um, for fine arts. And, it, you know, college in the Netherlands looks very different than here. We don't really do the like major minor system. Um, I pretty much just danced for four years and sang and acted from nine to five, five days a week. And, um, you know, that obviously requires you to stay in shape. And so that's where kind of my, you know, love for being active came from. And I didn't really go to the gym much uh, yeah, because obviously college was already taking up all my time. But then, you know, when I ended up graduating and I, I danced in California for a little bit uh, with a dance company and realized that I didn't want to do it anymore. 
um, I started to find that I needed to find other ways to be active. Now it was so ingrained in my system. So I started picking up um, other sports, mainly Muay Thai, because I had a little bit of a kickboxing background from the Netherlands. And um, I picked up some CrossFit too. And I realized that I really enjoyed myself <laughs> doing those things. So yeah, that's kind of my, my background in a nutshell. So when you were at school age, were you thinking about law enforcement or was your focus purely on the dance at that point? You know, it has been my dream since I was a little girl to work in law enforcement. I, I, I you know, I, I thought it was like forensic science that I wanted to do or, or something like that. Or I was, you know, one of my favorite movies was Silence of the Lambs. I like looked up to Clarice. I was like, that's what I want to do. And you know, I would watch uh, CSI and all that stuff. And that totally influenced me. And I loved it. And, you know, my American family on my mother's side, um, we have several law enforcement officers in the family, um, you know, veterans. And, you know, they, they had an influence on me. And, you know, I... For some reason, well, like I mean, kind of like I said, I didn't know anything better than dance. And so that's what I chose. I mean, you're a child choosing what you're going to do for the rest of your life, right? And I had shown interest in police work and, uh, and so forth, but it, it just gender roles growing up in the Netherlands and honestly, I believe still are quite strong. And people could argue that with me, um, which is totally fine. You know, the Netherlands is progressive, but, you know, generals are still pretty strong. Uh, so wanting to be like a first responder type thing in the Netherlands as a female is a little bit like what? But then on top of that, um, you know, in the Netherlands, the support for first responders isn't great um, because, you know, I, and I, I say that it's because of socialism uh, to an extent, you know, everybody's well taken care of in our country. So I've heard, I've heard people say, you know, why would you take a job where you have to take care of other people when you're not being paid well um you know why would you take a job that requires you to sacrifice for other people uh, it's very interesting i mean that's so crazy you know and so it just it didn't happen in the netherlands and when i moved to the united states i was in california and i met um i was in san diego so i mean and starting crossfit so i met you know so many law enforcement officers, firefighters, military, and I realized these are my people. And it, there was just this connection. And I realized that I still had my childhood dream of working in, you know, law enforcement or in, in some form of public safety Beautiful. So it's, it's funny because it mirrors what happened to me. I, know, I was told I was colorblind as a kid, so 
they basically scratched firefighter off the list of things that I could do. And when someone with a white coat tells you that as a kid, you're like, oh, okay, I'll take that as gospel. You know, now fast mm-hmm. forward 10 years, you're like, wait a second, what was that? You know, why is it I can see colors and you're telling me that I'm colorblind? So it took me to come to the US to have that aha moment and challenge it. And I think that was my destiny too, because in, in America, especially in Florida here, you know, you're a firefighter and you're a paramedic. To me, it's even better role than if I'd been a fireman back home. But just as you said, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. And obviously law enforcement is definitely in a, in a, you know, a, f- a flow or an ebb. If I got that right. The, whatever the low one is, <laughs> I don't really stop to think about that. <laughs> um, I think it's an ebb, isn't it? It's a stop, isn't it? Um, yeah. but you know, there, there is that kind of respect and that isn't the case in England. You know, a lot of times when I was young, the firefighters were on strike because their pay was absolute dog shit. And people were, you know, saying how selfish they were and all this stuff rather than going, huh, maybe we should pay these people a little bit more for being up all night while we're sleeping. But yeah, so it took me to come to the US to achieve my career. And it's funny, it was the same for you. Yep. Um, Yeah, you know, I just, it's just not one of those things that you kind of like grow up being like, I want to be, you know, I'm going to dress up as a cop. I mean, we don't even have Halloween in the Netherlands. So um, yeah, it's just different. And, and, you know, that being said, it's, it's tough. There's not a lot of respect for law enforcement or firefighters for that matter um, in the Netherlands, in my opinion, again, I I might have some people that would disagree with me, but um. I think that issue stems from World War II, where, you know, um, the the European countries were just shocked into not being patriotic anymore. You know, uh, they saw the absolute worst side of patriotism. And does patriotism cause... Or did it cause World War II? No, I'm not saying that. But I think, you know, Europe had a very distinct experience with what it looks like when patriotism goes unchecked and is led by, you know, uh, someone who's insane, obviously, but also uh, uh, can change the masses mind uh, as to how they need to live their lives. So I think that created a very um, anxious kind of like undertone when it comes to patriotism. And I think for some reason, um, at least the Netherlands, I can't speak for other countries, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, it's prevalent in the UK and in France and Germany um, is that, working for the government is kind of uh, uh, um, aligned with patriotism. And, you know, this is kind of like, I'm going on the, off the deep end here a little bit, but I, I, I truly believe that because, you know, in the Netherlands, there's very little respect for the military. You know, I had a friend who was a sniper in the military and he would um, go to work on public transportation in his uniform. And he's been spit on. And I think I just, and I, that, 
you know, I can't really explain it. I'm sure there are people out there that can more eloquently explain that connection, but I believe that this, you know, fear and this horrible, horrible history that we have with, you know, the police in the Netherlands just uh, uh, um, giving up in World War II, you know, uh, um, famously walking out. And, you know, I wouldn't say just giving up. I'm not doing people justice who fought. You know, I, I, I understand my family was involved in World War II as well. So I'm not trying to diminish that whatsoever. But I think it's connected. I just think long story long, <laughs> I think it's connected. But again, it's it's so important to hear all these different perspectives because, you know, I I hate the f- the phrase it's complicated because that's used these days to disregard any effort to put in a solution. But of course, there can be layers of complexity to an issue, even though I think the solutions often are actually quite simple. But understanding a why and peeling it back and thinking about, you know, the the occupation of, of Holland, for example, during, you know, World War Two, yeah, there's going to be a ripple effect. There's a ripple effect when I was living in Japan and some of the elderly people thought I was American and would literally get up off the subway seat and move away from me. And this was, you know, in 2001. So, you know, the, those those things carry over. But I think what's, I saw someone post, it was Tim Kennedy or something like that, talking about the difference between nationalism and patriotism. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion is. Nationalism, you know, you talk about tyranny. I mean, I think that the last least two administrations we've had here in the US are exactly that. One has peddled hate and thrown, you know, fuel onto that fire. The other one is complete government overreach. Do as I say, fire all responders if they don't take my vaccine. You know, so we're seeing like both sides of that circle right now, left and right, we're seeing extremism. Patriotism to me is what you have and what I have, which is we care so much about the country and we serve our country and we love where we're from and we love where we live now. And you challenge it because you know it can be even better. That to me Mm -hmm. is patriotism. Nationalism is just flying a flag blindly and listening to everything that some dipshit in a government building says and then blindly heading into, you know, to, to destroying your country. So I think patriotism is about growing your country and nationalism is about destroying everyone disagrees with you in your country. No, you're right. I agree. You can kind of um, take out the, the parts where I said patriotism and, and then input nationalism instead. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, but I mean, but what you're reporting is is very valuable to us, you know, and I think I see the same, like I said, with first responders in the, in the UK and in Vietnam, obviously, all our you know, men and women that returned, many of whom were conscripted, was spat on. I had, you know, uh, major capers on one of the original force recon marines who was wounded on the floor and someone pissed on him when he just flew back to the US. I mean, you know, horrific. So we see that, but I think there is a disconnect. And patriotism is about gratitude and what can I do for my community? How can I make my country better? And I think what we're seeing is this selfish child, you know, just I want mine. I don't want national mm-hmm. health. I just I, I, you know, I earn this money. Only only I am going to benefit from it rather than, oh, I don't know, every fucking religious book that's been put out there. 
try and help your community you know so i it's interesting with our international perspectives looking at as i said the the good and the bad from each of our countries because the goal is we learn from each other and we have humility to make each one of our countries better from the lessons of each other absolutely yeah i couldn't agree more i it's like an echo chamber (laughs) (laughs) well that's why we're having this conversation um (laughs) All right. Well, then, so I'm very intrigued as well. Before we get into your actual law enforcement career, you were a ballerina for, you know, many, many, many years. How did all that strength, mobility factor in when you started CrossFit and your performance in that? Um, okay. Well, first off, I got to correct you. I wasn't a ballerina. Uh, I, I the wanted moment, to be one. The moment I said that, I'm like, I bet that's the wrong term. So please educate me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, rather just a, I would just say a dancer. I was a, uh, I guess, halfway decent modern dancer. And uh, I did some musical stuff um, and theater work. So jack of all trades, which is what you're supposed to be, you know, in the arts nowadays. I mean, everybody's always surprised when actors can sing and I'm like, they could probably dance too, because you need to be like triple, what we call a triple threat nowadays. So, um, when I was triple threading, um, you know, I think when it came to martial arts and CrossFit, my coordination really helped I learned quickly because dancing is all about picking up choreography and, and, you know, music and all that stuff. Um, So, you know, in CrossFit gymnastics, obviously, you know, were easier for me um, because of my flexibility and, and, and strength, uh, you know, strength to hold up and carry my own body. You know, it didn't take me long to learn pull-ups and, and, and so forth. Um, because my body just understood, you know, the assignment <laughs> and, uh, uh, weightlifting how I, you know, it was helpful that I, I've, I was very flexible. I say was, cause you know, chemotherapy has kind of messed with my muscles, but, um, but, you know, I didn't have like the shoulder issues. I mean, I had other issues, um, uh, but, it was easier for me to pick, pick up Olympic weightlifting uh, and squats and stuff like that because um, I had this flexibility, which I had been working on since I was a little girl. So, uh, but, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much strength dancing also requires um, body weight strength, obviously, but strength nonetheless. So I think that translated uh, well, my obsession with being physically active also translated well with CrossFit and my competitiveness. <laughs> so I, I just quickly, you know, uh, uh, replaced my daily activity with CrossFit because I just felt this connection with how competitive it was and how physically challenging, how I was able to do gymnastics mixed with weightlifting it was super, super empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Now, were you already in law enforcement then, or was this before you started that journey? This was before I started that journey. And then, you know, CrossFit was a big influence because obviously CrossFit, you know, has a lot of law enforcement and and fire and military uh, uh, members. And so in joining CrossFit, uh, I started to realize that, you know, these are my type of people. I'd always kind of felt alone. And I was like, why? 
you know, my personality type just didn't mesh with the other creatives that I was working with, or I was in the service industry to be able to support my, you know, creative side. Um, and was a bartender and, you know, I'm very social, so that wasn't an issue, but I still had like this A type personality that I just couldn't place. You know, um, calm in chaos. Like when everything around me was on fire, I was able to just kind of drop into this calmness and fix whatever needed to be fixed. And that's very well applied on stage, very well applied as a bartender, but I wasn't satisfied. Uh, and finding these these first responders and military in the in the CrossFit gyms, I just recognized this personality type. Um, kind of dark, you know. I'd had a an ex boyfriend break up with me, uh, or oh well, we broke up. But he mentioned that I was just really dark and inappropriate sometimes. <laughs> and then I talked to these people, you know, uh, and I was like, oh. You like dead bodies too, huh? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so yeah, that uh, that was kind of how I was influenced even more into really uh, pursuing a career in law enforcement. Beautiful. Well, walk me through that journey into law enforcement, and then again, you know, what, what were the kind of physical um, crucibles that were set for you, and how did you perform having a CrossFit background and a, and a dance background? Yeah, so it's actually kind of an interesting story because at first I was pretty convinced I wanted to be a firefighter. Understandably. Um, Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I kind of fit the mold for a firefighter, you know, physically fit, uh, um, physically fit. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> I was just kidding. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of like a natural, you know, even my military friends and stuff like that were like, and, you know, my firefighter friends and law enforcement were like, yeah, you know, it's a physically demanding academy training job and you would be great at it. And, um, I went in Colorado, I went on a ride along with a police department because I was just, I don't know. I was just kind of feeling this type of way about, I wasn't sure if it was fire or police at this point, I was pretty convinced that I wanted it to be a, a fire still. I show up on a scene of a crime uh, where there was fire uh, involvement uh, because there was a medical issue and there was police involvement because a crime had been committed. And in spending time, you know, I talked to the uh, firefighters and they were like, what are you doing? You know, come, come work with us. And I, you know, the cops never said anything like that. They were just kind of quiet and grumpy. And but I got to watch their um, investigation, and I realized they were putting puzzle pieces together. And I thought that was fascinating. And I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to put puzzles together, you know, or puzzle pieces together rather. Um, you know, they were the first on scene. They were um, just, it was just such an eye opener for me um, because I realized that 
the intellectual challenge of being a good police officer um, was great. Like there's, there's a lot to challenge yourself with when it comes to investigating crimes, even if they're very simple. And I love a mental challenge. Absolutely love it. And so I just on that ride along watching them like piece the crime together while the fire department was taking care of the injured party, uh, which is awesome, you know, but I realized that where I wanted to be was the people that were trying to figure out why she was getting, she got hurt and what was going on. And I, I was just from that moment on fascinated. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So when I made that decision, I told two of my law enforcement friends uh, that work in the same department as I do. And um, they said, you know, why don't you apply for our department? I applied for one other department, but uh, they offered me the job before the other department did. So I ended up, you know, working with them. And you know, I was in police academy as one of the older students. I'm 32 now. I was 29 in police academy, uh, 28, one of those two. And, you know, I was one of the older, I was female. There were only four other women in our police academy. Um, and I had this feeling like I got to start over. I was like, wow, I'm almost in my thirties. And I have a feeling that I am actually starting all over again. And I was terrifying, but I loved it. Um, I thrived in Academy. I enjoyed the competitive nature once again and, you know, learning uh, so much and uh, getting to kind of like prove myself almost uh, was kind of what I enjoyed in Academy the most. Uh, and then you know, graduated academy, went into field training, got my ass kicked in field training um, because I didn't understand drug users, you know, and I was always a very happy-go-lucky, kind to everyone. I talk a lot, you know, service industry girl, <laughs> if you will. And, uh, you know, everybody in my police department was like, oh, God, here's Josie. She's always smiling and she's always nice. And, uh, well, did I learn my lesson there very quickly? <laughs> um, so, you know, that was a little bit of a struggle learning to deal with people that are like constantly lying and trying to fool you. And, uh, you know, I would be lying if I said it didn't affect the way I talk to people and the way I see, you know, people in general. But uh, my skills, my my verbal skills definitely helped me on the street. Uh, being able to talk down, you know, uh, uh, combative people that we were dealing with or um, even writing reports, you know. Uh, uh, I was able to articulate myself well enough to get through the uh, shock of... <laughs> You know, also having to be a dick to people sometimes. You got to speak their own language. And, uh, you know, after a couple months of really falling on my ass very hard a few times, I realized that 
I needed to learn to speak people's languages and started kind of adapting myself as best I could to the people that I was talking to. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's where we're at now, really. And on top of that, you know, I started once I was more comfortable out of field training and, and about a year in, I felt a little bit more comfortable with the job itself. I started looking into more case law um, because I'm also fascinated with the intellectual part of our job. You know, uh, it's a it's a part that uh, unfortunately a lot of officers don't um, really show a lot of interest in, but that, in my opinion, I believe that's because it's not really rewarded. And so, you know, as a police officer, we learn to have instant gratification, you know, put cuffs on and uh, show up on scene after r running code, you know, that that's very gratifying, a lot of adrenaline going on and studying uh, doesn't have a lot of adrenaline. Uh, unfortunately and so I understand as a police officer you're like gotta open a book you know I I want to chase bad guys <laughs> um, I want to drive fast and you know uh, so I think that unfortunately that side the academic side of being a police officer is often you know undermined I don't think that's the right word for it but overlooked undervalued undervalued thank you yeah yeah though it's interesting as well when you talk about turning it on because i'm i would like to think i'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy and usually that kind of kindness and compassion can you know in your case i'm sure talk someone down mine i mean talk down or more so just gain trust you know as many times where i've had to talk someone into coming to the er because they're actually very very ill but they're scared about you know, insert a thousand things. But there's also times where, as you said, someone's just a complete shitbag and you go, okay, kindness hasn't worked. And then the next thing is strapping them to a gurney and pumping them full of drugs to get them to shut the fuck up and <laughs> get to the mm -hmm. ER, you know. But, uh, you, but it's for your own safety too, you know, because some of these people can be very, very dangerous. And, you know, we talk a lot about DTAC in law enforcement. I was very lucky in paramedic school that we actually had a DTAC portion to our medic training, which was invaluable but you know there and a number of people I had on here that, that were paramedics or firefighters that have been attacked you know so um yeah understanding being that chameleon and matching that patient or that perp to whatever level you're at and then trying to bring them down if you can is important but having that you know hit an emergency button as well where you go from zero to 100 i think is equally important to have in your back pocket yeah i think that's like a um, honestly, personally, it's a make or break in law enforcement for me. And I'm sure in fire, honestly, as well. And even uh, EMTs and paramedics and military, it's uh, somebody in the academy, one of, uh, one of my buddies who is in a different police department, said that somebody taught, taught him that the, um, the act of, you know, turning it on is called a rescue beast <laughs> which is just this really weird name but it stuck with me because you know they talk about this all the time but running towards the threat instead of away from it 
requires so much more than people think it does because it is going against your nature. You know, fight or flight, we talk about that very lightly, but in reality, you know, not having an automatic flight response is very rare and it's an incredible talent. I call it a talent because it is something like keeping your calm in the eye. It's like the eye being the eye of the storm. And there I have seen the bravery of first responders um, in, you know, major events, minor events, these people that I didn't expect to have it, it, I say, because it really is it. And they just, you know, take over a scene. They are starting to control the scene. They do what is necessary to keep other people safe. Everybody's freaking out. But these people are thriving. And it sounds dark to say thriving, you know, when it's like a a shooting or, or something like that. But their brains just work differently. I would love, you know, I've read a couple books about this kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, my uh, brain surgery doesn't give me the memory to remember the titles, but a lot of them were about our minds in combat, you know, and the, the minds of these specific type of people in combat and a rescue mission is also combat. And just watching, I mean, this has just blown my mind, watching first responders sink into this, like, like I said, sink into the eye of the storm and just be capable of remaining calm and saving people is just phenomenal. And I think that not everybody has that in as a first responder. And um, I think that those people, they could do well as a first responder, but they're usually doing well because there's someone around them who does have it. So they're able to follow them when they need to. Yeah. No, I agree. The the book you're referring to, was it On Combat, Dave Grossman? On Killing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, great books. He's been on the show a couple of times, and I agree completely. And the other element of that, you... We're undoubtedly definitely cut from a certain cloth. There's no question about that. But another area that I think that is as important as you take that person who's wired for that, but then you also put them through, you know, a, a stress inoculation. I mean, that's not a the perfect word, but you ex- you put them to through stress under duress. You know, you you create that training bar as high as you can because we fall to our level of training. So with you have all these physical sides. You know, what what kind of uh, training environment were you exposed to in your department you know our department did a pretty um you know our academy did a really good job personally um i think we were a little too nice to people um but i'm a little harsh i have to say i know you know i have a high standard um because my life depends on you you know, and so for me, I I know that I've been a little bit hard, harsh about that in the past. I 
tend to not really have a filter. I call it um, McNultying myself for those who watched The Wire. Um, I just don't have a filter. It's a Dutch thing and a personality thing. So it's double for me. Um, so my academy, you know, we did some CrossFit, um, which I think is great, of course. Our arrest control was, you know, kind of the typical arrest control, in my opinion. Uh, we did have some grappling, which was um, interesting, uh, I would say. I mean, it, not for lack of want from the teachers, but the curriculum, in my opinion, was just... I guess we had gotten some issues for using too much force in the academy, so they had kind of had to dumb it down a little bit, um, which isn't quite the right word, but they had to soften it up, let's put it that way. So, you know, I just, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? And I just think that you're really taking away um, a very valuable lesson for people um, when you're not punching them in the face, <laughs> honestly, or choking them out. And so um, my department is phenomenal in trying to keep up, you know, with uh, standards, but also has that issue of being worried about hurting people. And so, you know, I, I hate to say it because I'm not in command, right? So there's a lot of things I don't understand. Again, I'm a go-getter and very physical and a little bit judgmental. <laughs> so it's easy for me as a, you know, 30 something fit 30 something year old to say, I don't think our programs, which include arrest control, and, you know, our physical uh, tests are adequate. So, you know, I've, I've expressed this and a lot of people know, obviously, because I can't shut up. And so I made it pretty clear that that's my opinion. Um, and I think it's like that across almost every other police department and even some fire departments. Mm. Oh, lots of fire departments. Actually, I, I spoke on uh, one of the interviews I did recently with one of the guys I used to work with who just got fired over this whole vaccine mandate. And then one of my friends, Jason, who ran past tense to the fitness department until that department completely dismantled that as well. Um, but when I went through Orange County's academy, they had been shackled with the same kind of things. And I don't think it was hurting anyone. I think it was just, I think personally, I see a lot of completely unfounded thinking that if we make everything easier, we can just get more people in and they can, we can get more cops and more firefighters. I think it has the adverse reaction. You know, I think if you really want to get people attracted to your department, you set the bar high and you stand by it. But I had it, you know, where I talked about this in the interview, we had this, this guard, literally a garden shed next to our training facility. And that was that was our fire evolution that we pulled the hose off the engine and pretended, literally pretended to squirt water at this garden shed. It was absolutely ridiculous. And I'd come from departments that put me through the ringer for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so seeing people that graduated from my class, some were amazing despite that. But there were some people that got through that should never, ever have couldn't even do push-ups, you know, or faked injuries. I mean, I saw it, you know, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Um, and as you said, lives depend on us. So without 
without getting away from a well thought out program, making it, you know, not just being a beating for a month, but actually having thought and process behind it. I want the person next to me, you know, the left and the right of me to be held to the highest standards and they want me to be held to the highest standards because my life depends on it, their life depends on it, and the people we serve depend on it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, the officers and firefighters, you know, that are not trained physically, And I really, I'm not saying this to blame anybody, but I think they have a different experience and a different career than those who are in physical shape, who are tactically sound. Um, It's a different experience, you know, like not being afraid of a fight is huge. I really think it's huge. Even if you say you're not afraid of a fight, you've never been punched in the face, you're afraid to get punched in the face. And, you know, if you've never been choked out, man, the fear of God will come upon you when you're getting choked out. And we obviously we see that happening all over, right? In, in body cam footage and stuff like that. And again, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback people. Um, and it's not necessarily their fault. I think it's still, you know, our system that lets them down and we're working on it but um yeah i i i say this over and over again everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face and you you said it too you drop you know in in these adrenaline filled moments you drop to your lowest level of training and 99% of the time, I'd say 90, because, you know, shooting often is trained very well in law enforcement. I can't speak for every department, but in my experience with our departments or surrounding agencies, but um, 90% of the time, that lowest level is your academy training, you know, and uh i've seen it happen i've seen it happen unfortunately you know i just don't believe that fist fights are ever necessary and i think everybody who does jujitsu or who is experienced in jujitsu agrees with me yeah oh i I do punching yeah i mean just just not being in law enforcement just being on the fire side but seeing through a martial artist lens and being a jujitsu practitioner myself even though still very very early on in that journey but um just yeah like you said the fear of being choked is horrendous the fear of just having someone on top of you who is bigger is horrendous and now you guys have got all the the vests and the the gun belt which is a hindrance which is also you know access to the weapon there is so much and you see some of these these videos and you're like these people just haven't trained they haven't trained with their fitness they haven't trained with their actual skills and like you said there's there's multiple levels of blame the department itself the hiring standards the physical selection standards the ongoing training you know are they training under stress you know these are all big things and what we're seeing is a push towards the opposite give them less money give them less support which is like all right so you're inviting even more of these these wrong decisions and these you know tragic encounters to happen yeah i mean training under stress you said it is 
quintessential. I think it is the most important element as first responders that we're either missing or under training. And um, that is because when the blood rushes to your head and your heart rate goes up, your decision-making falters, right? They teach us that in academy. They call, uh, uh, I think they've changed it recently, but they were color coding. You know, they called it going into the black. Um, and, you know, I've seen it time and time again. You see it on videos, you see it with your coworkers. I mean, we've all been been there, those who work in uh, law enforcement and fire and EMT and so forth. Um, training under stress is why I believe jujitsu and CrossFit are just you can't replace those like every first responder needs to train in crossfit and in jiu-jitsu i i say crossfit but you know high intensity training and and why i say crossfit is because it requires you to keep a cool head when your heart rate is through the roof you know jiu-jitsu i mean of course your heart rate is through the roof but crossfit's like I'm going to vomit, which is a very normal reaction once you're done with a foot chase and you're in the fight of your life for the gun on your belt, right? Your heart rate's through the roof. You have to think about what am I airing on the radio? Where am I? What is this person doing? Um, what are my legal um, options right now? Can I shoot? Can I use deadly force rather? Uh, can I not? What's happening, right? You have to think about a multitude of things while your heart is racing. And in CrossFit, you have to do the same. You have to remember your technique when you're doing a snatch, even though your heart rate is, you know, 145. You have to um, control your muscles while you're doing a bar muscle up, um, even though you've done 50 before that. Um, you have to strategize your workouts you have to understand where you can rest and where you can catch your breath and where you should push i mean these are essential uh things that translate directly into being a first responder and the same with jujitsu i mean i love jujitsu because it also mimics the stress that you can get at work you know, you are grappling with someone who is significantly better than you, uh, a brown belt, and um, you're getting choked out, but you know there's an exit. So what do you do? You remain calm, even though the oxygen is slowly being cut off, or the blood, rather, is slowly being cut off to your brain. You learn that you need to take a couple breaths and find your exit. And holy crap, if that is not life-saving when it comes to being a first responder, um, then I don't know what is. Yeah, well, it's being comfortable being uncomfortable, which sounds so cliche. It's thrown around a lot, but it's true. You have to seek discomfort. You have to seek getting punched in the face. So, you know, the last time you were punched in the face was, you know, three days ago, whatever it was, whether that's metaphorically or physically. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I find with the CrossFit one area, and again, this needs to undulate. You want to make sure that it's not every single class that you do this, but pick a day, you know, once a week, whatever it is, where you've actually had at least a night's sleep before, 
and take one of those workouts to a nasty place, go in that pain cave and, and suffer and test out that internal quitter that we all have, you know, when you want to tap out, show yourself that you can do one more rep, take one more step, you know, mm -hmm. pick it up one more time because that is how we create that that bar that's how we push that bar further and further up and you just can't get that kind of conditioning with other things that's why i love the strongman stuff that's why i love crossfit so i love jujitsu and even the striking you got to be careful because you go to a dark place in striking you're going to jack up your head so whereas in jujitsu you can roll you might crank your neck a little bit or tweak a shoulder or something but overall you're going to be able to walk away but as you said you you suffered you had some freaking giant lying on you you were being you know twisted 12 different directions but you made it out you got a little better and most likely if you do that for a long time whoever you encounter on the street is going to be a lesser version than the monsters that you roll with in the gym yeah you know i always say you know i i was coaching crossfit for a while and um i teach um, at the police academy as well. And uh, anyway, a lot of my interactions, you know, people are like, oh, you're so fit. You're like the fittest. And I tell people, I'm like, you know, I am not necessarily fitter than the next person, but I am willing to hurt. And that's what I tell people. Um, I know I said that very dramatically, but honestly, that's, that's part of it. And a lot of us, like, you know, this, like, just willing to sit in that pain cave. Your body is capable of so much, you know, and um, just taking on that, that pain, being comfortable with being uncomfortable is what I believe jujitsu and CrossFit give you 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. I just had a fellow Dutch person on Wim Hof. Um, I just interviewed him mm -hmm. yesterday and yep. he's got me exploring even further now because, you know, you're seeing some of the things that he does. And, and in my mind, I'm like, well, I can't do that. And then, then he's making you think, well, why? Why can't you do that? He, you know, he is definitely the king of, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I'm, I'm only, you know, a couple of days into his program, but I'm doing it every day now and, you know, trying to find that too, you know, this because I'm comfortable doing some of the fire stuff i'm comfortable doing some of the crossfit stuff and even though it sucks and i get uncomfortable it's still an area i'm familiar with now so now you take you know the cold and extreme heat which is our gear and try and trying to start mitigating that now you found yet another area that you were uncomfortable with that, that you can actually start pushing the walls out mm -hmm. so absolutely well, you touched on something, and I want to get to this before we get to, you know, the, the cancer element. Um, the, the comments that you heard in your career about, you know, people treating you differently because you are in good shape being a woman. And it's interesting perspective because you're not talking about so much discrimination, but almost again, that kind of gender definition that you kind of were exposed to as a little girl and were put into the the ballet route so so talk to me about that as a you know physically fit female police officer yeah you know it's in, it's interesting because um i think it's a phenomenon that a lot of um more old school police officers are not as used to so they're quite impressed with it uh, at least that's my experience um, but I also like noticed 
you know, and, and the guys didn't really, uh, I noticed that the men in the department didn't get the same type of treatment, but getting the type of treatment that it's impressive that I'm strong and in, in shape. And I know that's compliments, not a negative thing, but I don't know. I just, I don't want it to be, I want it to be the standard. You know, I want all female cops to um, blow away the, uh, um, you know, to blow everyone away. Let's put it that way. I want them all to do that to the point where it's not special anymore. To the point where it doesn't um, make for comments, you know, from mainly men and women too. But, you know, I had a lot of women reach out to me in the police department that were like, you know, I want to work out with you. I want to be, you know, fit like you or strong like you. And that's great. I want it to be that way because women in law enforcement as first responders, you know, they have a very special skill set. It's, it's different than men. You know, um, I've noticed, uh, you know, patients or, or suspects are generally not as willing to fight a woman and uh, to bring a physical um, prowess with that. I mean, you could just be so helpful to your coworkers too. show up somewhere and de-escalate someone because you're not afraid of them um, because you know you can take them or even at least subdue them for a little bit if you need to. Um, I think every female first responder could benefit from that. But that being said, um, yeah, it's just, it's a strange thing. It's, it's a great compliment when the people around you are impressed with you, but I just can't express how much it made me want to make other people just as quote unquote impressive. I want it to not be impressive anymore. I want it to be the standard, like I said before. And um, I mean, it's for men and women, but obviously for women, it's a little bit more like when there's a fit male cop. Yeah. You know, we'll joke about, you know, uh, uh, them being a meathead or whatever, but it's not the same like reverie that people have for females that are muscular and confident and strong. And again, nothing wrong with that. I just, it, it's interesting. You know, I just, I don't want it to be that way. I don't want it to be special. I want it to be the norm. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll give a, perfect parallel um a lot of the special operations mainly men because they're, they're men only a lot of these units at the moment um to hold us to the same standards as themselves police fire you know and really emt and medics should also be very very physically capable based on you know access to patient and removal from patients um but you know you don't get people saying wow you know you're very fit for a green beret for a navy seal for a pj yeah. because it's a standard yeah. so i agree with you completely and the fact that law enforcement and fire 
has allowed in some agencies that bar to be so, so low now. And and be very, very clear, a lot of what I do on this podcast talks about the environment that causes a lot of us to to fail physically and mentally. I mean, we're we have a very, very toxic environment that we work in, you know, that destroys the human body. But you know, if if there was an emphasis on performance, then I think there'll be more of an emphasis on creating the kind of work week that is healthy for a responder so they can recover when they're up all night. Because as we'll talk about, I see the ripple effects of mental ill health, of physical ill health, you know, obesity, cancer, all these things that our responders are getting from the shift work. So to maintain a physical bar, there is no downside. You'll have better performance in the first responder space and you'll have longevity through your career and into retirement. 100%. Uh, and that's, you know, notwithstanding um, the serotonin levels and, you know, your, your, um, I, I'm trying to look for the word, but basically the, dopamine in your body that is created when you work out you know that i mean it's irreplaceable you there's nothing else that will give you that satisfaction um and you know those i guess that outcome that that like extra additive for working out, you know, you feel better, you look better, but also your body starts producing these chemicals that will help you sleep, that will help you survive, period. And um, as first responders who experience trauma and adrenaline dumps over and over and over again, like a hundred times more than an average person in life, you need to pay attention to those chemicals. You need your body to make those chemicals because without them, you become depressed, you become ill, you become overweight, um, and you lose your ability to sleep well at night. And we all know that, right? As experienced first responders, we all know how that feels when your dopamine levels and everything is are just dumped because you just had the huge, hugest adrenaline dump happen three days in a row right and the third day you're just like in the twilight zone and now imagine living your life like that i can't imagine but i know people do first responders do that's why the suicide rates are so high and that's why the obesity level um is an issue you know uh, food is comfort for a lot of people or alcohol yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of sleep, were you working nights prior to your diagnosis? Yes, I love nights. <laughs> okay, because I mean, something I talk about a lot. I mean, the, the disruption of the hormones and you know the inflammation and everything from sleep deprivation. So, um, talk to me then about that your your kind of discovery, whether there were symptoms prior to the diagnosis, because up to this point. We've heard nothing but, you know, what an incredible athlete you were. Um, so it's it's good because it's, you know, physically you were in a great, great place. But cancer is a bitch and, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter. There's sometimes, you know, contributing factors. So talk to me about 
you know, going from that absolute peak to, to where you find yourself right now? Yeah, so I um, recently had picked up more full-time jujitsu practice, and I had hit my head at one point because of a bad break fall, um, and I thought I had gotten vertigo. So I kind of had a spinning sensation. Um, I got a little bit of a headache and, you know, I was like, okay, it's probably vertigo from the fall. Uh, I didn't really think much of it. And, um, actually what happened is I was on duty and no, 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 sorry, backtrack. I was uh, with my husband and I asked him if he would, uh, perform, um, horizontal gaze nystagmus test on me, which is the test that we do nationwide um, to look at rapid eye movement. Um, and that kind of gives us clues and or evidence to uh, someone's level of intoxication. So generally, you know, when you're intoxicated, both eyes will have what we call nystagmus, which I always explain as kind of like... Um, if you're trying to use a windshield wiper on a dry window um, or windshield, <laughs> it will kind of stutter. And that's what your eyes do when you're intoxicated. Now, your eyes also can do that if there's brain trauma. And so my husband, uh, at my request, um, checked the, uh, I think it's distinct and sustained nystagmus at max deviation. And my, my fellow police officers will know what I'm talking about on that one. Um, and he noted nystagmus, uh, which is that stuttering of the eyeball, um, in my left eye. Now, as police officers, we're obviously trained um, in DUI investigations. And particularly me, I love uh, doing DUIs. Anyway, um, we're trained to recognize the you know, if there's only one eye that's showing the nystagmus, that that's an indicator of possible indicator of brain trauma. So um, a couple days go by, I ask another coworker to do nystagmus on or practice nystagmus on me for lack of a better word. And um, I guess it's incredibly prominent and uh, several other officers see it too. So at that point, I'm a little worried, and uh, but I'm still like, you know, it's probably, you know, again, I've had a couple concussions, whatever, it may have been the vertigo and so forth. So I go to the doctor, and um, pretty much the next day, and he says, I need you to go to the ER, and I don't want you to drive there. So I go to the ER and uh, with my husband, and... They start doing CT scans. And at that point, um, I am notified that there is a tumor in my brain. Um, it's in the cerebellum. And um, they are not sure yet whether it's benign or malignant, so whether it's cancerous or not. And they um, advise me that they're going to admit me to the hospital overnight. So they did. And this was during COVID. So uh, visitors were, well, I mean, we're still in COVID, but, you know, the restricted visitor rules. Um, so I was only allowed one visitor 
until about 6 p.m., I think. Uh, so my husband was with me the entire time. And they did some further scans, MRIs, and confirmed that there was a tumor in my brain. So I was given the option of a biopsy, and they would immediately also try to remove as much of it as possible. Now, this is where it kind of gets a little complicated. Um, my health insurance, Kaiser, um, was covering my current hospitaliz hospitalization, which was in an SCL hospital, um, because it was considered an emergency. Um, but the hospital said, you know, we can't operate on you until after the weekend, and this was on a Friday. So they said, we can admit you for the weekend and operate on you Monday, or we release you now, and it might take weeks before you get surgery because of the long wait times right now. Uh, because then I would have to be treated by a Kaiser doctor. And at this point, I was being treated by, or I was, uh, I had the choice to be treated by a private uh, surgical, neurosurgical department that was connected to the hospital I was at. So I was given the choice, you know, still feeling healthy. I just learned that I need to have brain surgery. And uh, I was given the choice not see your dog again for the next four days, not see pretty much anybody um, and go into brain surgery and not know how you're going to come out or be dismissed and not know what's going to happen for weeks, possibly. So uh, I opted to stay in the hospital uh, because uh, we, you know, we talked to a lot of nurses that we, we really built a relationship with the nurses that were taking care of us or me, um, and they all advised to stay. And I'm happy I did because my neurosurgical team was phenomenal. So, um, yeah, I mean, in this time, I, so I was there for about four days prior to my surgery. I had to get a doctor's note to be able to leave the floor and go outside for a walk. And that's how I was able to uh, secretly see my parents, you know, uh, who had flown in from California uh, upon hearing the news. And um, so that weekend was, you know, was horrible because of an insurance issue. Um, I had to stay in a hospital, you know, and I couldn't, not knowing what was going to happen to me after the surgery, you know, if I was going to lose my loss of, or lose uh, hearing, my ability to speak, my ability to see, um, because the cerebellum, the part where my tumor was, all affected those things. So I just had to sit and wait, you know, um, which was horrible. I mean, I don't wish that for anybody, not my worst enemies, you know. So on Monday, I had the surgery, which is really scary because uh, I'd never had surgery before. I've really only been in the hospital for a couple broken bones when I was a kid. And so, you know, they brought me in and kind of talked to me about how they're going to put me under and so forth. And you know what? I woke up and um, it was crazy. One of the things that I apparently, you know, I don't remember this um, you know, the nurses in the ICU will ask you kind of questions to see if you're orienting and if your um, medication is wearing off. And I guess they uh, asked me at some point for my badge number, and that's all I 
repeated over and over again. It was 1811, 1811, 1811. And, um, you know, other than that, it was hard, you know, waking up from brain surgery, obviously I had trouble eating and I was, I spent a few days in the hospital, but all in all, I was released fairly quickly and I went home and I actually felt really good. I mean, I was on steroids, so, you know, that also helps with making someone feel good. Um, but very soon, I think maybe, you know, my timeline might be a bit wrong just because my memory was starting to get fuzzy at this point. Um, I think about a week or two later, um, we were still waiting on a biopsy because at this point they um, assumed it was a rare form of adult cancer called medulloblastoma. Now, this is really common among children, apparently, but among adults, uh, according to my doctor, it was like a one in two million type of cancer um, when it comes to adults. And, um, you know, we really tried and we promised each other that we weren't going to like WebMD everything that was being told to us. You know, we were really just putting our trust in our doctor's hands. Um, so a couple of weeks in, I started feeling sick. Um, I was getting really nauseous. Um, I couldn't get out of bed. I was very weak. I needed to be rolled around in a wheelchair. So I went from being all right. Like I even was able to work out a little bit, um, to being bed bound pretty much. And I started throwing up uncontrollably. Like every time I did, you know, anything that had to do with, walking or moving around, I would throw up. And um, at this point, uh, my husband and my mom um, and my in-laws, we were basically all together at um, their house, but we also went back to the apartment, my apartment. Um, so anyway, and we were moving between houses and stuff, but I was getting really sick. And so my husband and my uh, mom were incredibly desperate for answers because, you know, we kept getting, um, yeah, this is part of the side effects of the surgery, but we couldn't, what we couldn't understand was that the first week after surgery, I was fine. Um, and you know, they had been able to remove like, I think over 90% of the tumor. So meanwhile, we're still waiting for the biopsy results. We still don't wait, know if it's cancerous or not. Um, and while we're waiting for this, I keep getting sicker and sicker. And once we get the result that it's a medulloblastoma, we uh, are assigned a general oncologist at Kaiser. And I'm dropping, name dropping Kaiser um, because I believe that they uh, really um, let me down with their care. So I don't have an issue with name dropping on that. <laughs> um, so we were assigned a general oncologist and the first time I saw her, she told me I was never going to be able to work again. Um, after I had tearfully told her that being a police officer was my dream job. Um, then after I tearfully told her, my husband and I were going to try to have children this year, she told me I was never going to have children again. Um, and so she said, you know, you need to start thinking about in vitro, which is, which is totally fine. I was totally comfortable with that, but, um, I was so sick. 
that, you know, I, I mean, I could barely comprehend what was going on. So our general oncologist uh, dismisses us and tries to get us set up with, um, you know, the in vitro uh, clinic and so forth. And I start, you know, getting rapidly more sick and sick. Like it's getting to the point where I can't move without throwing up. And, you know, I throw up on myself and it's just, I mean, it's horrible. It's a nightmare for everyone to watch me be this sick and to be that sick. And so, um, you know, we let our general oncologist know that, uh, you know, I'm not feeling good. I'm not getting enough fluids. I'm probably dehydrated. So she says she, uh, I can come in for an IV. Uh, so I do. And then she comes and visits me, you know, says that this is supposed to be part of the recovery. Then the next day we ask if I can come in again because I'm still dehydrated. And now she gets a little worried. She's like, well, you shouldn't be coming in two days in a row. Uh, mind you, she hasn't done any neuro checks on me. They, they, they just, this has gone now for three, four weeks I've been this way. Um, now, at this point, she asks for my uh, radiologist to do a CT scan while they're there. The, my radiologist was, sorry, let me explain that. My radiologist was fitting me a mask for radiation. So she asked him to, you know, make a CT scan. Based on that CT scan, um, I had an emergency MRI. Now, when we had that MRI, we were at the hospital where my general oncologist was. And I say general because a lot of people who have knowledge of brain stuff know that there's nothing general about brain cancer and brain tumors, and you 100% need a specialist. 100%, even if it's just a specialist to advise your general oncologist, but the brain works differently than the body, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it, it, it seems you know, pretty specialized to me. Yeah, you know, uh, it really is very specialized, and we've learned that the hard way. But anyway, so uh, we go upstairs to my doctor's waiting room for the results. She doesn't bother to come outside, but instead she calls my mother and says that I have another tumor growth or regrowth, not another, but a regrowth of my tumor. And um, so we're in a hospital that's close to my home in Colorado, and she sends us to a different hospital, to uh, a Kaiser hospital. She says, you need to go there. Meanwhile, I'm still in a wheelchair, mind you, and I can barely talk. And every time you move, you get ill. Yep. So we're uh, moving me. You know, my my husband and my mom are in a tailspin at this point. Completely understandable. Uh, they drive me to this other hospital. The other hospital, um, you know, admits me to the ER, and then they come and tell me, like, we're very sorry, but we can't treat you here. We don't have your brain, uh, your MRIs. We don't have that information. And you had a surgical team operate on you, you know, less than a month ago or about a month ago, you know, they are the ones that need to go back into your brain or skull. So I get an ambulance ride back to the hospital. 
that I initially was at. And, um, you know, they, uh, my, from there on, I don't have any memory. I just know that the, uh, from my family that the surgery took about eight hours. Um, it took a while for me to wake up in the ICU it was a lot harder. Um, uh, you know, a lot more complications, uh, occurred during the surgery, but it was the same surgical team that treated me in the first place. And they were again, able to remove like 98% of my tumor. Um, so <laughs> second time was very hard. Uh, turns out I had, you know, an, an insane amount of, uh, PTSD, if you will, trauma, uh, food related, related trauma, because I was so used to throwing up, I, I couldn't eat. So this, we spent a week in the hospital just trying to rewire my brain and trying to get me to eat again. Um, which was, you know, hard to try to get me to walk again. Yeah. Um, and those things were all quite difficult, but I was really lucky with my surgical team, unlike my oncologist, um, because I kept my hearing, my balance, my eyesight, my, my voice. I mean, definitely, you know, I've definitely had two brain surgeries, <laughs> I can tell, but um, all in all, I'm insanely lucky with the team that took care of me, um, besides my general oncologist. Now, um, we requested a, at this point, uh, whew, I'm going to take a break for a second. <laughs> um, do you have any questions about that? No, so no, no, no break. No break needed. Just just take a breath and, and carry on. But I mean, just well, let me interject for one second while you, you have that thought process. So what is maddening hearing that coming from a country that has national health, not socialized medicine, national health? I hate that word. Um the whole premise is that everyone gets care and the whole system, although not perfect, I think is very good when it's fully funded, is integrated. You just, you know, it's whether you're a Scotland, Ireland, Wales, wherever you are, um, uh, Scotland, England, Wales, excuse me, you know, it's all integrated. So it's all the same system. Um, and when bureaucracy gets in the way, as we see here in the US, you know, you had this team, oh, you're not covered under them or, you know, I've, I've had friends a friend whose wife got cancer and his department switched insurance and the cancer treatment she was receiving was no longer covered. I mean, just awful. And it parallels what you've probably seen in law enforcement as well. Oh, sorry, person who's dying across the street. That's not in our jurisdiction. We can't help you. You know, and we have it in the fire service and just doing what's best for the individual is lost amongst all this political bullshit. And then here we are hearing it from the horse's mouth of someone who very easily could have died just because of red tape. Absolutely. Um, you know, the whole insurance thing just, I mean, I can easily now say, you know, these, these businesses are not here to protect you. You know, and if you don't have an advocate, for yourself, I don't. I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have my husband and my mom constantly on the phone every day with every type of representative you can imagine. And I just, you know, all I think about is, especially the elderly or disabled or somebody who doesn't have an uh, um, 
advocate, you know, a friend, family, friend, something to help them out, they would, they would just fall between the cracks and die. You know, if it's something as serious as my brain tumor or something else, you know? Um, and that was just, I mean, the thought of it is just shocking, honestly. And we have good health insurance. We're both in law enforcement, right? So, or my husband and I, and so, uh, we're, our health insurance is considered good. Um, but you know, once I was out of the hospital for the second time, right. Um, we found out that I had a, uh, hydrocephalus, which is a, basically, a, an infection of the surgical cavity. So fluid was building up in my brain, which, uh, according to my doctor, um, created a little hotbed for the tumor to come back or whatever cells were there. Um, they hadn't been treated yet by radiation, so they started to grow again. Now, hydrocephalus is easy to, somewhat easy uh, to fix with a shunt. You know, they, they, they basically drill a hole. I think they drill a hole in your skull or open it up and let the fluid go out, and then you probably go back on steroids. This is kind of my guess, but um, from what I've heard. And it's also very common, and everybody failed to see this. I even went to the ER at one point and they did a CT scan and sent me home. So, um, you know, this hydrocephalus went unnoticed and thus, you know, from, from as far as I know, you know, I'm not a medical expert, but as far as I know, um, that is most likely would call cause this like an inexplainable regrowth, you know, that happened so violently and so quickly or aggressively is the, the better word for that. Anyway, um, so we requested, after all this with our general oncologist, we were obviously like, okay, we need somebody else to take care of me. So we requested to move to a medical campus, um, Anschutz Hospital here in Colorado. And our request was denied by Kaiser. And so... At the time, I was actually um, engaged to my husband, and we got married while I was still in a wheelchair, um, you know, with about seven of our closest relatives and friends around us in the park next to my house in the snow um, so that I could get health insurance coverage at Anschutz because I wanted to be treated by a neuro-oncologist who was experienced in treating my extremely rare form of cancer, God forbid. <laughs> so, you know, ever since we've been to Anschutz, it's been a world of difference. I mean, the first appointment I had with my uh, neuro-oncologist, she diagnosed me with PTSD. And, you know, she's like, yeah, you have trauma that's related to eating food and related to being sick. And immediately, um, started working on the issues that come with having cancer and started offering me help. And I just started crying because none of that had been offered to me while I was at Kaiser. And I had relied there on the nurses who were, you know, amazing, but nobody else reached out, nobody helped. And, you know, I had a nutritionist 
which, yeah, you know, to be fair, uh, certified dietitians like bless them. They, I'm sure they give good information to people, but there, that was nothing I didn't already know. But Anschutz provided me with therapy, uh, you know, uh, treatment, uh, medications that I needed to, uh, you know, kind of be able to get through all of this. And I just, again, I, I can't imagine what would have happened if I didn't have my husband, who I was able to marry at the time, you know, the fiance at the time, and get that insurance from. Because uh, otherwise, I would have had to pay it out of pocket. And I would have. But, um, I, you know, I was really lucky that I had fr- a, a very close friend start a GoFundMe for me, um, which had been very generously donated to. And, you know, I was 100% ready to use uh, every penny of that if we, if we needed to, if I couldn't go to Anschutz under my husband's insurance, you know. So, uh, but luckily, uh, I was able to go uh, from Kaiser to United, and I'm now insured under them, and my treatment is a million times better. I can't even begin to explain. So here we are. Now I'm on uh, light duty, (laughs) back to work, which is great. Well, just to pull two things out of there. Firstly, I was always amazed slash disgusted when I first got into, you know, the fireside and obviously we were doing EMS a lot and bringing a patient into the ER, the first thing that was asked wasn't who is this patient? How are they doing? What's wrong with them? Almost every single time, the very first person you saw was, Hey, can I give you your social security number? So they were, it was more about the money than it was the wellness. Now the individuals in the ER, the doctors, the nurses, you know, the techs, of course they cared. But the machine that was the healthcare system was more focused on getting them bill paid the moment they got through the door. And they may have just learned that they got cancer. They may have just lost a child. They may, you know, who knows what happened prior. And that was That's the very first thing. Yeah. And then the other thing that I've heard from many guests now is, that they receive a cancer diagnosis and then they're like, all right, bye. And that follow-up to have this life-changing event that's going to have financial ramifications, emotional ramifications, um, you know, it, there's no aftercare, there's no follow-through. And, and that's what I have seen with, for example, back home, like when my grandfather had his diagnosis at 99 years old, the care he and my grandmother got, the home visits, I mean, it just, it was absolutely amazing. And I have not seen that in the US yet, you know, and, and that's the thing as we talk about other systems and there's this demonization and this, like I said, this shitty label, socialized medicine. It's not, it's altruistic medicine. Over there, when it's funded right in the right area, if you're not in some, you know, war-torn inner city hospital and every city has those, you know, the whole point is you treat the whole person. So that's where you see in, you know, Holland or some of these other places, oh, maternity leave is this, the paternity leave is this, you know, there's mental health, you know, um, ability to take time off for mental health. You don't have to, you know, be near suicidal to get a day off in some of these other countries. So hearing that from someone who's from the Netherlands, experiencing that firsthand, you know, and, and a public servant here in the US um, and, and, wanting to see just a medical professional who's actually a veteran in in the diagnosis that you have and 
money gets in the way. Money, you know, causes my friend's wife to possibly die just because pieces of paper have changed. I mean, it's it's disgusting. It really is. And, you know, I'm so glad that you, in your case, after some trauma, were able to remedy that. But so many other people aren't. No, you know, I 100% agree. And, and um, the whole lack of follow-up is the whole reason why this hydrocephalus and the, the tumor regrowth went unnoticed. Nobody came over to our house. Nobody, you know, we went to the ER, but we're kind of like, you know, in and out. Um, there was no aftercare, even in the time once we started knowing or once we knew based on the biopsy that it was cancer, even then, you know, um, my general oncologist at the time didn't recommend anything other than, you know, in vitro. Uh, and that was the best she could do. And now looking back, I'm like, there is so much more to it. Like I said, now that I have received the care from a different hospital and a different provider, I realize like how many moving parts currently are, you know, my, my doctor had to schedule like several different appointments for me that my general oncologist at the time had failed to um, schedule for me um, that had to do with uh, basically testing my baseline and making sure that, you know, I, I don't lose hearing over time because of chemo and all that, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, a lot of baseline testing that she ordered like right away when I started with her that my general oncologist never even brought up. And I just can't even imagine if I ended up staying in treatment with her, what that would look like. I, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't look good. And I agree. It's just uh, the fact that insurance was like the big culprit in this is just, uh, or part of it at least, is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I just, I, I have no words for it. Well, I think it's humility as well. And again, you know, I don't know the oncologist that you're talking about, but let's make an assumption that they weren't the most proactive of providers. Having the humility to say, this is out of my jurisdiction, Yummy. out of my skill set. Yeah. You Absolutely, know, and I have yes. that all the time, even in the back of a moving rescue flying towards a number of times. I'm like, Hey, we've done this, this and this. I feel like I'm missing something. Has anyone got any ideas? Because we're not God. None of us are God, you know? So if you have brought the patient and, and their presentation is exceeding what you're supposed to be doing, like they say, there's no phrase, it's not kidney surgery. It's, it's not brain surgery because that's obviously much more complex than, as you said, other parts of the body. So yeah, and you had this person who was part of this team before. That should be a you know a big red flag. Like, hey, I probably need to swallow my pride and consult or refer to get this patient the best treatment they can get. One hundred percent. It was definitely, you know, she admitted to not having treated uh, medulloblastoma before, and I mean, I just um, everybody who was with me at the time agrees that there had to have been some sort of ego involved with the fact that, you know, I wasn't assigned a neuro-oncologist. So, which is just, I mean, again, uh, this was my first experience, real hospital experience uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, and in general, really. So there was so much we didn't know. We had, we had to learn the hard way. 
which was crazy. And honestly, you know, the crazy part is the only reason why we knew about this doctor at the other hospital was because um, of a coworker of ours who had had similar experiences with his wife. And he was able to recommend um, their neuro-oncologist. And I mean, again, like short of, I think we spoke with a couple of people and short of moving to the MD Anderson uh, clinic in Texas, which is where, you know, they, they understand medulloblastomas and they study them more. Um, there was no one else that would have the expertise to be able to help us. And we just got really lucky. I mean, first we got really unlucky, but then we got really lucky in finding my current doctor. You know, I want to say as well, if I'm not mistaken, that one of the guests I had on previously said, it might even be Dustin, said that our profession seems to have a higher incidence of these very, very, very rare cancers. And again, as I alluded to, I think a little bit earlier in the conversation, to me, one big, you know, and you know, uh, common denominator in a lot of our professions is shift work. And I'm sure you probably see it even in nursing and, you know, the uh, the doctors and and um, you know the correctional guards and all these people that are under high stress and working shift work as well. Yeah, honestly, you know, I I was told that um, most of my cancer is most likely um, a hereditary type of cancer. But um, that doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, working shift work, uh, although necessary, you know, I love night shift. It's my favorite. But it, it will diminish your body's ability to, you know, fight illnesses whether you notice it or not, you know, that, I mean, the circadian, circadian rhythm is, you know, so fundamental to a person's health that even though, you know, we're getting sleep because we're working night shift and all that, um, there is so much evidence showing that having that like different circadian rhythm, you can't catch up with that, right? You can't make up for lost sleep. That's not how it works. No. You can try to sleep away the, the tiredness, but you're not going to make up for losing those hours. Well, the damage those hours have done, and that's the problem. Yep, that's a, that's a problem. And, you know, we don't have a choice, really, um, except to adjust the schedule, um, you know, to I'm more of a fan of the whole, uh, what is it, 72 hours? And then you... I think you the fire yeah. does that more often. Yeah. So yeah, my my gold standard, I think, and it wouldn't have been gold standard, it'd be like a bronze standard to be honest, because I think shift workers should be make working less than the average, you know, forty hour person. As you know, 100%. we're working a lot more. But yeah, twenty four seventy two. So that would give, in my opinion, at least enough time between shifts to recover. As you said, fires happen at night, you know, crimes happen at night. Prisoners need to be watched twenty four hours a day. I totally get it. You know, people come in the ER at 2, 3, 4 a.m. We have to be there when everyone else is sleeping in their beds. But in return, we have to take care of our providers and our responders and our military so that they are able to recover being awake while the rest of us are asleep. And that involves a shorter work week, you know, whether you're in law enforcement or, you know, whatever your position, if you're doing 12s or 10s or 24s, 
we have to give these people more time off because we are literally killing them at the moment. I mean, absolutely. You know, um, obviously police officers can't work 24 hours because we, we can't really do the go to sleep and wake up type situation. Um, which is, you know, uh, a blessing and a curse. I think a little bit of both. Uh, that being said, you're right. I don't think a 40 hour work week, I mean, as, as much as I love work, um, for the health and safety of our first responders, you know, to include what you said, nurses and, and so forth, um, shouldn't be 40 hours. You're right. They need more time off. And, and here's the crazy thing at this point, like where we're at right now is, um, with COVID outbreaks in departments and so forth, uh, our first responders are asked to work even more, you know, lowering their immune system even more. Well, they're given opportunity and, for time off now. If they're not vaccinated, they get the rest of their life off, which is a real, go. real thank you for all their service. Oh yeah. I remember when, you know, before I got this brain tumor was the, the heart of COVID and, you know, nobody had a problem sending us out on the front line, you know, at that point. But, uh, I mean, you know, I think everybody got a thank you and a slap on the ass and uh, uh, have a good day. Bye. Thank you for your service. I mean, I can't, I, I mean, that's just also beyond me that that's even a thing, you know, like without being sounding too dramatic, you know, I, a lot of law enforcement, I mean, first responders in general responded to the call for help during COVID and continue to help people, you know, regardless of, what was happening. We couldn't call out of work. We weren't stuck in our homes. It wasn't uh, a possibility for us to say, I'm not comfortable with coming to work. Uh, my anxiety is really high right now. Well, too bad. We need you. And now they turn around and, and, and say, we needed you. Uh, so now we're good. I think we're going to be fine. Thanks. And, um, you have a good life. <laughs> Just firing people for, I mean, if you're going to believe in bodily autonomy, you have to believe in bodily autonomy all the way around, in my opinion. And I do believe in that. Um, so I don't think you get to pick and choose what type of bodily autonomy you can, uh, uh, uh allow for people. Well, what's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I cut what? you off then. No, 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 you're fine. I'm just blabbering. Go ahead. <laughs> not at all. You're not. Um, but I believe Amsterdam, oh, sorry, um, the Netherlands are way up there on the, the lowest amount of obesity and way up there on the lowest amount of deaths as well. And so that's, that's one of the things that I've seen. I think as well, when you look at that, Norway and all those places, it's also very, very high in the vaccination rates. And that's the thing. When I talk about this, oh, you were anti-vax. I was vaccinated. Fuck stick. Okay, calm your tits. However, <laughs> when you look at the fact, and I posted about this today, that there's been no attempt to address any of the underlying health in this country, the obesity, and I won't prattle along because I talk about it all the time, but there's also a complete distrust of this vaccine. You and I know there's never been a distrust of anything like this before. So what does that tell you? Is this some sort of like, you know, thing that's going to kill everyone or has this whole issue been politicized so much that it's the not the vaccine but it's the actual distrust that is the real issue and when you look at places that 
trust their government, like Portugal, for example, you also see actually a very high voluntary vaccination rate and therefore no need for mandates. When you look at a country that has pieces of shit that have become president, aka the United States of America, the last two, so again, commutates, not left or right, both, but people who have driven a wedge between people deliberately then you get distrust, then you get a lack of buy-in into the health campaigns. I think vaccines are a tool. They are far from perfect. But if they help and you're healthy and you're okay with taking them, I don't think it's an issue at all. But this fear, this division is not about vaccination. It sure as shit isn't about health because you need a healthy body no matter which road you choose, as I've said in many interviews before. So that's what drives me crazy is this... It isn't about health, and the fear is absolutely politically driven. So you got these members of families and you know former best friends ready to murder each other over basically what has been a political element. And the actual health element, if you take a step back, has no validity because nothing has been done to improve the health of the nation. 100%. I mean, from... Um accounts from my friends who still live in the Netherlands, you know, uh, the Netherlands has their, has some uh, uh, political issues and leadership issues. And uh, they are also struggling with some, you know, vaccine, uh, uh, anti-vaccine situations. Um, But that, like you said, that's because there's a, a very big amount of distrust in the government right now. Um, and that has to do with, you know, the political parties that are currently in parliament um, and not, you know, necessarily a distrust of the government in general. Um, but they also have politicized the vaccine and they're doing this. I mean, even though the Dutch are a lot healthier naturally than um, the United States and then people in the U.S., they also have not promoted you know, your physical health as opposed to, you know, the vaccine or both for that matter, you know, and in the United States, I mean, it's gone a whole nother level and they were offering free burgers and ice cream and whatnot. And it's, I just, I mean, I read an article fairly early on in COVID and, you know, they were, the news was starting to fear monger and, they had written an article that says perfectly said perfectly healthy, you know, 16 year old dies from COVID. And I click the uh, article and this was a type one diabetic who was like, I think like 200 pounds, 200 pounds, 16 year old. And nobody deserves to die. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that the media said perfectly healthy. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, I mean, maybe that kid was never told that he has the option to not be the way he was. You know what I mean? And that's an issue. And it's the environment. I had someone comment, and this this person seems to always be very negative, has got me, you know, hovering over the block buttons he's starting to piss me off now but i posted this graph of just obesity in america the last i think it was since the 30s so you know like 98 years and it's this just you know 45 degree line as we time's gone on we've got worse and worse and worse and even the projected was even you know horrendous um 
And, you know, he's like, oh, well, you know, fat people are pieces of shit and they just need to own it. It's like, no. Otherwise, it would be a completely parallel line that wouldn't go up. You know, if it was about human ownership, it's human ownership and environment. And if you create an environment for health, aka, again, I always talk about them, you know, Japan, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, you get healthy people. You create an environment for ill health. For example, you monetize disease through drug companies and fast food and putting chemicals on our food. Then the result is, yes, you're going to have, you know, people like you and me that despite the environment, we're still going to exercise, we're still going to eat well, we're going to research, we're going to find clean food. But that's despite the environment, not because of the environment. Your average person is going to start trending up. And you and I see 40-year-old responders in uniforms, you know, X amount sizes bigger than the the fit person who stood on the diamond on the drill ground. So to say it's ownership is completely wrong. To say it's all the government or environment's fault is completely wrong. It's both of them. And we haven't created an environment for health the last two years. We've allowed that fast food mentality to be attached to a jab in the arm as if it's going to solve all the world's problems. And I really feel it started here. This division started in this country, same way as drug prohibition started in this fucking country. And it got, you know, speaking of cancer, it's cancerous growth went all over the world. I just saw an anti-vax movement in New Zealand, and rightly so, they got mandates there, and there were fucking Trump flags everywhere. Trump 2020. What the hell has that got to do with vaccines or New Zealand? So, you know, that's the problem, is this division and this nastiness has permeated out of our borders and well into the rest of the world. And, you know, what needs to resonate out there is fitness and nutrition and mindfulness and sleep and time in nature and community. That would be a great export, but we've exported hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. Um, it's easy for me to, you know, sound judgmental about people that are dealing with obesity because I've never been obese. You know, I don't have any of those issues that are that come related to that. Um, you know, and I, I, I just want to give it kind of the caveat that I'm not trying to disrespect people that go through this, especially because of illness or trauma. Like I understand that food, I mean, for me, food is comfort. You know, I lost 30 pounds uh, after my surgery. Um, So I, I, you know, I went from being 155 to 125, I think 115 even. Um, So, you know, I've kind of experienced like, uh, a, a different relationship with food. So I understand that, you know, there are caveats to all of this, but I think you're right. I think that as accepting as uh, we want to be for all humans, you know, of course, no matter the color of, the skin, of your skin or how big or small you are, we just can't deny that, you know, being obese will kill you eventually maybe not directly but indirectly and the fact that the united states doesn't recognize that and you know is just beyond me i i don't know how to uh you know you're right it's it has to do with nurture of people so from a young age you know and you can't blame parents especially not when they're there's no uh, maternity leave and 
you know, parents have very little time to think about, you know, can I steam and puree my kids' vegetables or can I give them a bowl of Cheerios? I, I mean, I can't blame them. And there's so many layers to this issue, uh, just like with the mental health issue in this country, that you, I mean, I, I don't even know how to unpack it, really. Uh, and as a European, I can't tell you what we do right as a Dutchman or Dutch woman, um, what we do right. Uh, I know we bike to a lot of places, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you guys always bike everywhere. But, you know, we don't have school cafeterias necessarily, not where uh, uh, you can buy sandwiches, but it's optional. Most people bring their own lunch because the Dutch are very frugal. Um, you know, if you go to the back to the cafeteria, it's really a treat uh, type situation. And then, you know, I came here and learned about cafeterias here and what they give to children. And I just, I don't know. like I said, it's a hard one to unpack. It is. Well, I mean, I think the same way as I talk about, you know, the, the prohibition issue and imagine the resources we freed up if we stopped using all our law enforcement, you know, time and, and manpower on addicts and it absolutely address, you know, as I've said before, you know, this, the, the dealers, the smugglers, the violence around it, absolutely throw, you know, court system, everything at them. Imagine the resources that we would free up if we used proactive measures to address the obesity epidemic in this country. Imagine those physicians that sit behind a desk writing prescriptions for statins and blood pressure meds and, you know, uh, opiates that could maybe be focusing on different types of cancer. Imagine the the lower frequency of cancer if we stop putting chemicals on our food. The fact that you'll see pictures of farmers wearing hazmat suits as they spray our food with chemicals and we're like, oh, what? Why is there more cancer? I mean, for fuck's sake, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm a very, very limited intelligence and it seems to ring red flags to me that I'm going to put that in my child's mouth. No, I mean, you know, so that that is it is that we just go back to that kindness and compassion element. If if this is not nurturing, if this is going to cause disease, that's where we start. Simple, whether it's in a school, whether it's in a farm, you know, whatever. And, you know, what I have seen is, again, no discussion on that whatsoever. So now we're just using even more resources and we're wearing our first responders so thin and then we're firing them because they didn't conform, you know, and it's just... I know I just feel like we just need to stand the fuck up and say enough is enough unified take that wedge between you know you and your family anti-vax pro-vax lib you know republican you name it whatever you've been allowed to be split by push that out the way find all the commonalities and we need it we just need to control all delete on so many things and if people are benefiting oh, yeah. from our deaths and our sickness that needs to be ground level that we address yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm so torn between like being a proponent of capitalism and being an opponent of capitalism because I've lived in both the United States and the Netherlands, you know, that have very different eco economical systems. And, uh, you know, the problem is you can't have it both ways which is hard, you know, innovation comes from the fact, in my opinion, very much comes from the fact that innovation is capitalized in the United States. You know, we have a lot of private 
money that goes to uh, uh, innovation. And we are, you know, the, I think the number one country in uh, a lot of uh, research and development uh, type of situations. And that's because of capitalism, really, you know, that we don't rely on the government's money um, to make these, uh, 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 how do you call it? findings or you know to, yeah, the, to, the research to, to, studies you mean yeah yeah exactly um but then the fact that healthcare is capitalized you know uh, obesity is part of that too i mean how many people that are obese have to go to the hospital on a regular basis for underlying other issues that are usually caused by the obesity but why would we fight that when there are so many people making so much money off of it? That's, that's, a, that's a problem. You know, I remember when, um, this was a couple of years back, there was a lot of talk. Oh, yeah, no, of course, when Obama was um, introducing Medicare. Is it Medicare or Medicaid? That um, he- well, I think both... Both those were around, if I'm not mistaken. It was the Obamacare, wasn't it? The, the, Obamacare. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, which is a, a really piecemeal, you know, half-assed attempt at some sort of actual national health. Agreed. Uh, you know, really was sloppy at best. And I remember the discussion coming up, people saying, you know, doctors are going to be paid less, so they won't do the job. Now, we do not have a shortage of doctors in countries where, you know, medical care has not been commercialized a lot of our and doctors think- are homeless in the uk oh really no i'm just <laughs> <laughs> they drive That's mercedes crazy. and have nice cars <laughs> yeah they do exactly and uh yeah you told they threw me <laughs> off the last trip. <laughs> so you're talking about um yeah the, the doctors weren't going to get paid um well yeah. in the u.s versus the netherlands oh my gosh and i mean i would it was just such a like funny thought to me and I'm, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. So whoever's listening, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, a doctor is so much more than making a lot of money. You go through such grueling, uh, you know, university school and, and hours and, and, uh, residencies. It is so much more than making six figures once you're out of this. And there's no way that the, all these people that have gone through medical school, all they think about is dollar signs. I'm sure there are a few, but it requires so much more work than that. That I, that argue, when that argument came up, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know? And you know what? Maybe um, if we don't allow pharmaceutical companies to pay our doctors, they would stop prescribing um, oxys to people you Um, know when i first came to america i remember being sick with some you know it started as a flu whatever i always you know just wait and wait and wait but it turned into an infection that wouldn't go away some sort of like sinus thing so i just wanted some antibiotics and i'm not i think you know i'll have antibiotics like every few years so i'm not someone that seeks it usually but i remember feeling like absolute crap i was working as a firefighter by this point um and waiting in this this doctor's office while you know, drug rep after drug rep after drug rep, you know, all dolled up, looking like it just came from the makeup counter in a department store. And, you know, 
and then you finally get to see someone and the waiting office wasn't even that busy waiting room and then when they do it's like a candy store oh take these samples and these samples and these samples so yeah i mean it's it's you know you get this commission element and that's just you know the opposite of the hippocratic oath and you talked about capitalism i think capitalism especially altruistic business you know where you make money and help people at the same time i love that model but the problem that we have not just here you know in a lot of capitalistic um, countries is they're not chasing capitalism they're looking to make money they're looking for the the monopoly that's the holy grail of, of the capitalistic mindset here. And that's why you see CVS and Walgreens are right next to each other. They're trying to put the other one out of business versus, hey, there's enough room in each town for a butcher, or a baker, or a candlestick maker, you know, but that's not the way. I want my mega store to close that whole fucking town and you all come to Walmart or whatever and you buy all your stuff from me and I have all the money, aka Amazon and all these, you know, companies that we've seen. And there's absolutely upsides, but, you know, it's, when when you get people wanting all the money, that's where capitalism becomes evil, in my opinion. Yeah, yep. No, I I agree. I you know just seeing what um, this kind of commercialized version of everything does to a country, you know, and makes people want instant gratification. You know, it's this constant feeding on that is just, oh, it's an issue. But it, I think there are ways to, you know, run a, a capitalist country perfectly fine. The problem is that when you start making money off of other people's problems, then that's an issue. That's just an issue. Period. Anywhere in any country. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, that was an awesome tangent, but it's not often that you know I get to speak to a fellow European who's also an expat <laughs> living in the U.S. in the, the first responder community. Um, you know, and it's very real to you because you've been through it, and that's the point. It's not me standing on some soapbox. I mean, here you are going through your recovery from your cancer diagnosis, so you experienced it firsthand. So back to that. Where are you now? And then where are you projecting to be? Actually, before I get to that, let's talk about your promotion to detective. Uh, well, I kind of was not accidental. I mean, I've, I've worked hard. I, I've just, you know, haven't been a police officer for that long. Um, I think I'm coming up on four years now, maybe three. I always forget. But anyway, um, you know, I, I, like I said, when, when I was saying my badge number in the ICU, like I absolutely love my job. I have no doubt that I was made to do this job. Like this was exactly what I've always wanted. And I mean, I, I didn't start this career until I was like 29 and I'd already done a lot with my life. So that feeling of being like, Oh, this is it. Like not a lot of people get to have that. And I did. So, um, Needless to say, I was, I really wanted to get back to work. So after radiation, um, I got a position, which is light duty, if, uh, the term we use for when you can't be on the street, basically. And I was going to take phone reports, but my uh, vocal cord got all messed up and I couldn't take phone reports. So instead, um, 
my department improvised and offered me a position with investigations to help, you know, write warrants and so forth. And turns out I really enjoy that. And I was doing good work. And when I was feeling better, you know, starting to feel better after radiation, because radiation hit me really hard. Um, when I started feeling better, and I was actually able to do more and more work, I realized that maybe I should put in for a detective's position. And luckily, right, uh, I think a month ago, uh, a one-year detective position opened up, uh, and a four-year, and I applied for both, um, which when I say applied, you do uh, basically an oral board uh, with uh, command staff and sergeants in the department. And I got the one-year detective position. And, you know, people can say, like, oh, it's convenient because it's not like I could go back to patrol or anything like that. But, um, I, you know, I had conversations with um, with my sergeant and a couple other uh, commanders or people in command, let's say. And they uh, they said, you know, you earned that spot. You know, it's not not because it was convenient for us or because, you know, we felt bad for you. Um you earned every bit of it. And so now I'm working as a detective and it's amazing. You know, it's part of my keeping my mental health um, healthy, if you will, right now. Well, firstly, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Secondly, to have earned that whilst undergoing chemo post brain surgery, I think speaks about your, you know, your, mentality or mental toughness because i think that's admirable you know a lot of people would would drown in their suffering a little bit and i don't mean that negatively even even but to have you know the fortitude to still be trying to grow even though you're having a rest at the same time i think is is incredible so what are you projecting i mean obviously you want to be present but you know if everything continues to go the way it is going what are you projecting as far as you know full duty again physical ability all those things yeah, so I am uh, definitely like slowly starting to move towards um, normalcy, if you will. The cancer's gone, um, or the tumor rather, and now basically my chemotherapy is maintenance chemotherapy. Uh, it's cisplatin and vincristine and lomastine, which I think are famously uh, really heavy chemos, chemotherapy treatments, um, and I'm fine with that. I'm like, all right, let's just make sure we, we, we kill this forever, you know? Um, and, you know, I didn't mention before, I think, uh, that the radiation I went through was cranial spinal. So, you know, typically on average radiation is like a couple minutes, you know, especially proton radi- uh, radiation, um, very precise and can pinpoint whatever it needs to pinpoint based on a lot of measurements. Now, uh, medulloblastoma has a tendency to metastasize in the spine. So to be safe, they they radiated my spine and my brain. So an average radiation treatment is, I think, you know, under 10 minutes. Mine was 28 minutes a day, five days a week for six weeks. And your entire CNS. Yeah, my entire CNS. So I was 
very heavily affected by my radiation compared to a lot of other people. Um, like extreme, I was extremely ill. Now I say that because, um, that meant my recovery, you know, took a long time recovery from my radiation and my chemotherapy has actually been manageable compared to that. Um, which is why I think I've been able to jump back on my feet again during chemo treatment. You know, having that comparison of going through radiation and then being in chemo is like being set free from from some kind of uh, invisible bindings, you know. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I actually am going to the range for the first time again on Sunday uh, under strict supervision from my uh, um, uh, instructors, you know, and they're going to help me and we're going to kind of figure out what's going on and uh, what I can and can't do. Um, and this doesn't mean I'm going to be on the street anytime soon, but the goal for me is to be, uh, to complete a fit for duty test, uh, at the end of my chemo and be ready to go instead of ending chemo and then doing another, you know, six months of training and all that stuff. And, and my department has been amazing in, um, meeting me halfway, you know, uh, and telling me, all right, as long as your doctor says it's okay, then, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I think chemotherapy should, it's a year long chemotherapy, which is also longer than, um, you know, average, but it seems that to me, from what I've noticed that people that are going through chemo for brain tumors, uh, have a longer, um, chemo schedule. And it seems to be that chemotherapy in general is hard to get through the blood brain barrier. Uh, so I think there's some complications there that make it longer. Again, this is me just guessing, really. Um, but so, yeah, I won't be done till springtime. Um, and that by then, like I said, hopefully uh, come summertime, I'll be in the detective's position. But hopefully by then I can, you know, pick up extra duty shifts again at the hospital or DUI shifts and uh, and so forth. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions quickly so I can get your thoughts on those because I've been interested in perspective with you know with the the journey that you've been through and if you've done any reading or seen any films that are kind of pertinent um so the first one I love to ask is there a book that you love to recommend or books that can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated um you know it's not illness related but the book leadership in the shadows by Kyle Lamb is yeah, I mean, it was life-changing for me. Um, if you're a first responder, I say it's your duty to read a book like that. Um, Kyle Lamb is able to address a lot of issues when it comes to leadership in the first responder world because, you know, our leadership is just different. Our leaders have to take uh, and it's military as well. I mean, Kyle Lamb was a, a military or is a military. Uh, honestly, I couldn't tell you what his position is and I don't want to do him an injustice by saying something wrong. So, um, you know, leadership is different for us. Uh, you, le our leaders um, have responsibility over our lives a lot of the time, right? That's a little bit different than being an office manager. 
And, you know, even if you don't want to be in a leadership position, that book was just phenomenal. One of my favorites. I just can't speak well enough about it. Um, I also, you know, I, um, I really liked uh, Can't Hurt Me. Um, David Goggins. By David Goggins. Yeah. You know, I had a little bit of a rough upbringing um, to kind of put it nicely. And I really love, you know, the concept of taking ownership of your decisions and taking ownership of your life. And, you know, some people found it a bit harsh that I recommended the book to. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that. But it's, there's nothing in that book that's not true. Uh, in, in my opinion, again, uh, opinions can differ and that's totally fine. But those two books um, I've read fairly recently and I just, I would recommend them to anyone and everyone. Beautiful. All right. What about a movie and or documentary that you love? Yeah. So actually recently I saw a documentary on Netflix called The River Runner. And it's about a group of whitewater kayakers, specifically one whitewater kayaker. And, you know, I wish I could tell you. Oh, yeah, I think it's Scott Lindgren. And the movie was made by Rush Sturgis. Um, and I watched it not knowing what was going to happen. Um, uh, spoiler alert, it's cancer related. And... Um, Man, it was so beautiful, so powerful. Um, and it had to do with, you know, power of the human mind and, and body, the, the resiliency that we have within us. Uh, you know, I, that movie was just absolutely breathtaking. It's a documentary. Um, and, you know, I recommend watching a lot of Ted Lasso after that because you need uh, you're going to need a couple laughs because you're definitely going to be probably crying. <laughs> Beautiful. That is, I think that's one of the good things that's come out of this last, not even so much the pandemic, but just the last few years with Netflix and you know Amazon and some of these other entities. There are some beautiful documentaries, some very, as you said, with with David Goggins' early life. I mean, we need to hear those hard-hitting stories because behind the curtain are, you know, of so many people out there are these tragedies, these traumas. So I'm really enjoying this these beautifully made, you know, documentaries that are taking place of all the god-awful sitcoms and <laughs> soap operas that adorn TVs for decades and in our younger years. Yeah, you know what? Um, you're totally right, and. I actually have to give a shout out to a show that I think you would like a lot too. Um, it's currently being aired on Argo, which is a free, I believe it's a free online subscription service. Um, and they do, you know, independent filmmakers. And there is an independent filmmaker called Doris Mouse who has created um, a series called Together Alone. And in this series, she addresses mental health. Um, and they're beautifully filmed. Um, I'm biased. She's one of my best friends. But it, this documentary has won a lot of awards uh, and got a lot of uh, nods from, uh, you know, the, the, the film industry. And these are real people um, who speak of their... Uh, traumas and their mental health issues 
And, you know, without it being um, a judgment of any type or opinion of any type, it's a very just beautiful way of undressing mental health. And, you know, she captures these people in their, um, in their comfort zones, basically, and has them speak of these, like, you know, how hard it is to live with mental health and how they've learned to cope. And, you know, it's really interesting. It's also really interesting if you don't understand mental health very well. It's very eye-opening um, to see these, you know, normal people talk about panic attacks. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, panic attacks, whatever. But then this person actually sits down and looks at the camera and describes what happens to them when they're having this panic attack, you know. Um, and also, if you yourself are experiencing mental health issues. This show really, like I said, undresses that and addresses, you know, issues that these people have come across and they're very honest about it. And some, some of these you're like, Oh, wow. You know, I've experienced that. Um, it's like a kindred soul type, you know, feeling or, or not. It could also be kind of wor worrisome. Hey, maybe it shows you that, there is help out there for whatever it is you're feeling. So together alone, um, she was on Vimeo and I think now she's on Argo, but, um, you know, she's striving for more understanding in, of men, people that are, you know, suffering from mental illness. And I, that, I think there's six episodes and they're just extremely powerful. Every single one describes a different person, a different different type of challenge that they're up against. And it uh, really opened my eyes to, you know, the day-to-day -day mental illness issues that people have. You know, not just the big stuff that we see as first responders, you know, uh, um, but the the undercurrent, the middleman, just the, the not middleman, but just the everyday human being yeah not the extreme emergency ones that we get to see exactly uh which which i don't get to see often you know and i haven't experienced so it was very interesting for me to watch that and what was her name doris d-o-r-i-t-h yeah mouse m-o-u-s brilliant so that kind of leads me to my next question. She might be a good answer for one of them. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I mean, Dora would definitely be someone. Uh, she used to be a, a quite the supermodel and uh, went into movie making and photography. And she actually recently retired from being a model. Um, but she's been a close, close friend of mine for a long time. And, uh, she is an advocate for mental health and it's very interesting to, uh, to hear her side of, you know, why she's doing what she's doing. And, uh, I, I think that would be a great person to have on the show, especially considering so much of that we would recognize as, for, as first responders when she talks about it. Um, and she just gives a different perspective, you know, she's, she's just, I wouldn't say she's just another person, but in this, what I'm trying to say is she's just another person that is suffering from mental illness. And we learn that it's not always, like you said, the medical emergencies. It's also this slow 
quiet killer, you know? And I think we need to know that just as much as anybody else does. Absolutely. And that's the thing I like to try and get different perspectives. I mean, I'd love to get more people from the music industry, for example. I mean, you think about, mm -hmm. you know, the, the alcohol, the, you know, the late night shows. I mean, you think about the, like Avicii, you know, the, the techno scene. I mean, you're on stimulants that are keeping you up all night. Your raves are going through the night. It's disrupting your sleep. There's a lot of parallels. Now you take the models, you know, the body dysmorphia, the, um, the social stigma. I mean, all these, these elements. I mean, they're all human factors. And if we just had, you know, tactical people talking about mental health and didn't expand it that way, then, you know, we would think it was our problem, you know, but it's, as you said, it's a human being problem. So I think that would be great if you're able to connect us, let's make it happen. Oh, I totally will. That's uh, easy enough. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know how to find you or follow you, what do you do to decompress these days? You know, I've been doing a lot of yoga. Um, I've been working out some, but it's just hard to have the energy to do so. I really want to go back to a CrossFit gym. You know, I miss lifting barbells and stuff. And so we are hoping to sign up for a gym um, next month. Um, I probably won't really do like classes, just depends on how big the gym is. But I kind of want to start picking up a barbell again um because i miss it like crazy so i decompress by working i know that sounds weird but i i just love work and i can really you know focus on it and um you know i my invasive thoughts about cancer and and such tend to go on pause when i'm working i just can focus on uh, one thing right um i really love hiking and being outdoors also haven't been able to do that as much as I would like to because doing anything when you have cancer is kind of complicated. Um, but being outdoors has just always been, you know, something that was very healing for me. Um, you know what? I will also say this, uh, and this, you don't have to be, you don't have to have an incurable disease like cancer to live this way, but I was always living for the future. And I've had to learn that I have to take every day for what it is, because I don't know when this cancer or tumor could come back and prove fatal. So I have learned the absolute hardest way you can to, you know, really try to enjoy what makes you happy around you, like my dog and my husband and my plants and my friends and to really show my gratitude as much as I can um, because, you know, keeping it inside, you know, is not going to make me happy. I've, I've noticed that showing my gratitude for these things have made me happier. Um, so that and honestly, I read a lot of books. <laughs> So those are the things I kind of have been doing. So for people listening, I'm sure they're inspired as you were, you know, pre-cancer, you were doing, you know, all this stuff with brute force and, you know, all your kind of tactical athletic side. So where are the best places for people to reach out to you, to follow you online, those kind of things? Honestly, I'm mostly only active on Instagram. Um, so you can reach out to me, you know, send me a message, ask me questions, please ask me questions. If you have any really, there is no such thing as a stupid question. 
um, I am happy to answer um, anything that, especially when it comes to cancer and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, but my Instagram handle is Josie V, like J O S I E V I E, like life, <laughs> Josie Life, I guess. Uh, so yeah, you know, hit me up, follow me, or just send me a message. Like I said, reach out if you have any questions about anything I said, or you know, want to know something else. Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Josie. I mean, firstly, I think I, I don't know what the first part of this conversation, how long it was, I forget, but we're probably close to three hours now with those two put together. For everyone listening, we did it in two yeah. halves because of a dental appointment. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's it's so invaluable to hear the international perspective with you being, you know, Dutch initially. Um, you know, your own experience going through into law enforcement in, in both countries and, um, you know, then the cancer diagnosis and the, you know, the highs and the lows and kudos to your department, by the way. It's so great to hear a department stand by one of their own when they're going through it. So I want to say that as well. Absolutely. But, yeah. you know, I've, I had one of my friends, Eric Sienna on, um, and we did an interview and he passed away, you know, so to, to hear, someone going through what they've gone through and then you know as you said being cancer free as of now and, and having this different mindset and becoming a detective and it's just been you know so inspiring to hear your story um and i'm looking forward to seeing pictures of you in the crossfit gym like you know like prior you know pre-cancer <laughs> days um yeah. but just thank you so much for being so generous with your time and telling your story today well thanks for hearing my story and being willing to broadcast it